pre-radiocarbon dating, the assumption was that you know you had 30 or 40 or 50,000 years in order to come out of an ice age or get into an ice age. Once you had radiocarbon dating, it became apparent that no, 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 it was much, much faster than that. Um, Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grime America Show. We are going to be chatting with the one and only Randall Carlson uh, a little bit later. Uh, not a whole lot later because, as usual, we talked to Randall for a shade over three hours. Um, so we don't want to keep you guys too long, but uh, packed with a bunch of stuff. Uh, but first, as always, Grime Holy Man Dunlop. Hey, buddy. Hey, what the Holy Man? Uh, it was a listener request. Oh, Holy Okay. <laughs> All right. No problem. So yeah, I just want to mention before we forget that this is on video. We we recorded with Randall some slides, and so there's a video presentation of this. It'll be on YouTube's. On and, the YouTube's, yeah. And, Not the regular YouTube's. So there's going to be two YouTube's. I'll name something so you. I'll name put a name in the video like you video. So it won't have this. The video won't have this intro. That's But right. the audio version will have this intro, and of course, the podcast version that goes out will have our little lazy ramblings here for about fifteen or twenty minutes, just to take care of some housekeeping and get some listeners involved. And then yeah, there is a video. It is worth checking out. I mean, it does get a little stagnant from time to time as we just get caught up in the conversation and forget. I forget to change slides, but I mean, for the most part, a lot, a lot, there's a ton of information in the video for sure. Yeah. What I, what shocked me about the, the stuff that I didn't he was switch showing. back and forth, like you were saying, it took me so long just to get it where I, where everything, where I wanted it in the first time, like the thought of going in and starting hacking it up. Is there any Randall's the, head in there at all? The first 20 minutes. Okay. That's good. The first 20 minutes is Randolph's face, and then the rest is slideshow. And then the rest is slideshow. Yeah, there yeah. were some pretty interesting graphs in there that showed yeah, how. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like going back 100,000 years, or how long was the some of the graphs? Were they going back a million years? I'm not sure. I can't remember. Um, I'm getting our episodes It was like up. only up in the last, like, the climate has only been as stable as it is for the last, like. 12,000 years. 12,000 years. And, and, that, and that stability. Before that, it was just fucking all so erratic. It was crazy. Yeah. Like, degrees by degrees by degrees every year boom, that's what boom, shocks boom, me boom, boom, boom. so there's all this fear-mongering about climate change and when we're not being maybe dogmatic. not every year i suppose it'd be like every 10 years or whatever those i don't know what the delineations were but yeah it could have been 50 or 100 years even but yeah nothing compared to what we've got now it's super steady right now it almost and, looks like if you were watching somebody sing in the hospital you would think that they died if that was someone's no, like heart rate quite, monitor they'll go like they're dying. Yeah, they're so they're dying. They're fading fast. <laughs> You're panicking. Yeah. So we're not dogmatic about this. I mean, we know that like we're not doing the environment any favors, and we're not saying that that we're not causing some sort of change, right? I mean, and even Randall's not dogmatic about it. Like that's what I find. The people on this side of the argument, they're not saying there's nothing going on, right? It's just to what level, and that the models aren't working. And that they're not taking all these other things into account, like solar cycles and the history, like Randall goes back and shows the history there. No, they're just, I mean, the, the lack of actual science that goes into any of the people that claim to be doing climate science is, is just baffling. to me. Or you know what it is. What it probably is, is just like specialization. They're looking at this in the atmosphere and this guy's looking at that in the atmosphere and no one's looking at it all. Go back to Easterbrook too. I mean, the Don Easterbrook um, episode episodes yeah. talk about the same things. Yeah, I mean, there's enough whistleblowers out there correlates. now, and there's enough scientists out there now showing this type of science that 
um, that is skeptical of the fear mongering, right, of the global warming. It, but, you know, but I talked to my friend about it the other day and she was like, well, um, you know, I don't see what the motivation is for them. People have a hard time seeing, like, why are they um, purporting this so much, right? Why is there so much hype over this? They feel like it's got to be real then because it's not funded by any corporation or anything like that. But it's a bigger picture than that. It's a whole global global scheme and the taxes and the, the money being created and the control mechanism. Oh, Bill Nye is driving me crazy. I just got to cut myself loose. Well, the same friend said Bill Nye was very like she likes him actually. She yeah. doesn't she doesn't agree with the dog dogmatic part and some of the some of the if things you're he's a doing. Fan but of Bill Nye, you just gotta no, not the, talk to me. No, no, no. But she he he made people and when they're younger, when they watched him, get interested in science and get interested in all this stuff. Like he actually had some real pot when he had his own now show he's back then or whatever. That it should be illegal to have more than one kid. I know. I know. Did you know that there's more elderly people in Canada than there are children? Yeah. That's a huge problem. The last thing we need to be doing is having less than... Well, then maybe people should be adopting from third world countries then. Well, we're just... We're, just, we're not going to get into that here. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Anyways, I'm trying to... What I'm trying to say is that I feel like... I would be all for adopting from third world countries, by the way. Families adopting kids? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But we should still just be having at least two or three kids. We shouldn't be telling people at least not to, or we shouldn't be... We shouldn't be propagandizing yeah. people not to procreate when, yeah. when we're, when we're not even at sustainable reproduction numbers. Right. In Canada, you're talking in about. Canada, we're at like 1.7 or something like that. If it's less than two per couple, then you're not, you know? Yeah. So is that the way we're moving backwards? I guess so. Eh? Yeah. 1.7 kids for family. Yeah. And some, even, and some other Western countries are even worse, right? Yeah. Like 1.5 or something. So yeah. anyways, I, you know, I find that the dog, the dogmatic side is the side that's propagating this whole fear about, about us, about us causing global warming slash climate, climate change or whatever. I mean, we're not doing any good. Like I'm not saying. Slash global cooling. Oh yeah. It, are good. yeah it's, it's all just, bad, you know, you know but. But right now, level. it's all we got. We can't be anti-nuclear, anti-fossils because wind ain't doing it. Wind ain't doing it. And I'm not a fan of the let's take a step back from, you know, progress. Right. You know, you can't just... Well, I mean, something's going to come up. We're going to get to some, some free yeah, energy or something right. sooner. Or, or maybe later. something you get efficient enough that wind and stuff like that can work. But just right now, it's like, it can't. And all the stuff that makes you think that it can, if you, like, really dig into it, you're going to find out that it's all peppered with fucking fluff and it can't. Yeah. If we shut off the plants and just tried to hope for wind and solar right now, your power is going to be pretty intermittent. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. Well, anyways, let's, uh, so it's, I don't know. It's a little bit different than normal Randall talk because we've had Randall on a few times and usually yeah, it's I about his like catastrophism, this but this one was more focused yeah. on climate change, which was kind of cool. We're going to get, yeah. And this is going to line up really well with next week's Fenton. Yeah. They kind of tie in well. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a great one. So, anyway, what do you got? Well, I got a couple of reviews I thought we'd read and um, uh, and some spam. Nah. You really got me. You got me. That's the one thing I don't have, have uh, prepared. You ready? So... Yeah. That's like twice. Uh, I'll find one. This is the 
profound UFO quote of the week. I got my little Remember document. Remember when you out. weren't just going to do UFOs anymore? What was I going to do again? You were just going to do... You're going to... I mean, you did a couple, I actually think you did a couple other quotes. On consciousness or something like that? Yeah, or something, yeah. Okay, I got one. What I found was compelling evidence to claim that most of these aerial objects far exceeded the terrestrial technology of the era in which they were seen. I was forced to conclude that there is a great likelihood that Earth is being visited by highly advanced aerospace vehicles under highly intelligent control indeed. And that was Dr. Richard F. Haynes, retired NASA senior NASA. research <laughs> research science. <laughs> Scientists, Research Institute for Advanced Computer Science, 1998. You know, I need something subtle I can do for your gaffes. What? I need just something subtle. Like, you know how no agenda has the bell? Yeah. There's something when you do a gaff, a little ding. I thought you said gas. I thought, how did you hear me fart? I was just like, what did you hear that? Studio is like a 36 cubic foot box. Actually, I think that'd only be like six foot by six foot. Yeah, no, more, that'd be no. It's that'd more like a hundred foot cube, or no, more no, a thousand, thousand, thousand cubic feet. Yeah, ten by which 10. isn't much. Ten by ten by ten. Yeah, less than that. No, it's eight by eight by eight. Really? Yeah. Outside. <laughs> Inside is less than that. This is probably closer to seven by seven by seven. So like your forty nine is three fifty minus seven is. 343. Take away the table and all that. I've got like three feet behind so me. It's actually like 350 me. cubic feet. Yeah. All right. So what else? Oh, here, I'll do this. Bingo, bingo. Social media jingle. Oh, you got some social media now? Just a couple. Like I said, I don't want to do the intro too long. Where the podcast's already three and a half hours. So we have on number 201, Patrick Jordan is a well-researched and well-educated self-taught scholar academic. He's free-thinking and expressive because he loves what he's doing. He teaches what he's learning. On number 193, man, this show is great. Number... uh, Oh, so here's two on on number. So these are both on episode the one with the uh, particle physicist. Okay. Um, <laughs> we have hey guys, get Abby Art and Abby Martin on, please. Then we have. I've tried. Hey guys, please don't have Abby Martin. On. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, everyone should also consider by the Deuterminch. Everyone should also consider that, just like Jeremy Bentham's Pentopicon, mind control specialists wish you to be hyper paranoid and self censored. Note the mass media loved Snowden but never mentioned William Binney even once. The funniest is the statue of Snowden. Even though nothing changed, I looked into Horton's video about six months ago, and since I am no longer naive to the lengths intelligence agencies will go, I found quite a bit of nonsense in the first video I watched. Huh. Alan Connor, she is telling the truth. Please tell her, the UK crew. Okay, it's UK posse, not the UK crew. <laughs> uh, I so totally dig the awesome musicianship of the Slash Support jingle. Uh, that's our buddy uh, Felix, the king of jingles. I accidentally called him the king of shingles. 
said, I hope you're not the king of shingles, unless you're a roofer, and you might want to be the king of shingles. So uh, I can hear it at 5 a.m. in the morning. Oompa, oompa, chinga, chinga, disco, go, go, closure, go home, schmucks. You want to guess who sent that in? Uh, no. Yoni. Oh, yeah. Joni? Of course. Joni? I yeah. Uh, sounds like Fletcher has been listening to them. Steve Hackett, early Genesis. For the love of fucking God, please, Darren, call Graham's intro in with Graham, holy man, Dunlop. Oh, there you go. God bless. All right, good way to end it. Actually, I'll play the jingle for Joni, and then we'll ask for support. No, no, I got, I got stuff to read, too. We could still, oh, what are you going to okay. For well, social got, media? No, okay. I don't know if I have that jingle. Oh, here it is. They make you laugh if they make you cry if they blow your mind. Why not go online to grimeerica.ca slash support? Thank you very much. I like that one. It's so good. Yeah, all the Felix ones are good. Yeah. I don't have the other one on the thing handy yet, but what I'll do is I'm going to play out the episode with uh, the good vibes. Did you get the jingle I forwarded you that I didn't listen to, just so our listener knows it sent it in from... uh, Which one? How long ago? From Garrett Lee, I think, from our chat. Just recently? Yeah. You don't... He doesn't listen... Garrett, people, if you got jingles, and you probably should just send them to Darren, because he doesn't read my emails. (laughs) So if I forward it to you, he probably just ignores it. Yeah, let me see if I can find it, and you can do the support spiel this week. No, I got... uh, I got uh, some reviews I wanted to share. Okay, fine. Do that then. So we got a couple of reviews here. This is uh, from... I just wanted to mention it because this really helps, I think, these iTunes reviews. This is from uh, Tuna Moreno. The guys managed to talk about... That's a five-star review. Of course, thank you. Uh, the guys managed to talk about controversial issues without being polarizing. They always have really interesting guests and ask great questions. They don't take themselves too seriously, which is refreshing. If you like weirdness and strange stuff with a tad of conspiracy thrown in for fun, this is for you. And then the next one, and his title was funny and interesting. The next one is This Show Is Out There, and that's from Killanola. It's like being on a mind-expanding consciousness trip each week, but you go to work right after. No hangover, too. So thanks for the reviews, guys. And I do have a spam, a spam there if you want to. Um... I'm saving all the trip reports and some synchronicities for the next intro where we got some more time. But Not this a is, whole lot more time. This is from Mary. Two hours and 45 minutes with Fenton. Yeah. Yeah. This is from Mary Beth. She says, hey, guys, just here to dangle my $3.33 in front of you to remind you of the clout that entitles me to. I'm kidding. I wanted to let you know that you guys have been killing it lately. The past five or so episodes have been fascinating. At any rate, I love all the synchros, trip reports, lucid dream stories, and the way you reach out and engage your listeners. It's truly unique and endearing. It's difficult to find people in your personal life to discuss these topics with. I love, too, much to the annoyance of my coworkers and husband, I share my dreams. I feel especially obligated to share it if they are in it. When Graham was telling Cyrus... The way his dreams sometimes affect his disposition throughout the day, I was like, yes, me too. My dreams are like 70 cent, oops, 70% emotional and 30% visual. 50 cents, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) They They can leave a long lasting impression on me. I remember more the way I felt than what I saw. 
I know it seems silly, but some dreams can stick with me the whole day. Maybe keeping a journal would help? What do you do? Graham, I hope you had a great time in the Sunshine State. I wonder if it's as weird to be a tourist as it is to be native. And Darren, your dry sense of humor is Canadian national treasure. I don't have cable, TV, Netflix, Hulu, etc. I basically only watch slash listen to podcasts and documentaries on my phone. But that's okay. I've got you guys, JRE, and others to keep me entertained. There's a bunch. We should post our podcast list someday, somewhere. Yeah, I don't have any suggestions for guests. I like being exposed to unfamiliar people and would rather let you guys have carte blanche to express yourselves. It's your show and your vision. I'm just here for moral and insignificant financial support. Cheers. It's not insignificant. Yeah, it helps a lot. If everyone gave 333, we'd be we'd actually we'd have a studio, <laughs> a real studio that wasn't in a garage. We could do a pod, couple of podcasts a week because we wouldn't have to go to work anymore. Yeah, the investment might be paid off too. Yeah. Yeah, we put a little bit more into this than we planned. We didn't really have a very good business plan. No. And what was I going to say about marketing? Oh, yeah, it's good to hear how you guys found the show as well because that's pretty much our only market research. Hey, and if you live in like Calgary or Canada, maybe if you live in Alberta and you're an accountant or anything like that, email me. Because I do, I am, you know, we don't have a ton of support, but, you know, there's enough people supporting the show now that I worry that we should be. Your account just email. Yeah. Support the show. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. We don't have any ads or any sponsorship. Like, you guys are our sole um, funding. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And Graham's Visa. Well, yeah. Used to be. Yeah, used to be. Before we wrecked it. Yeah. <laughs> Before it maxed it out. Before we broke it. <laughs> so check out grammarica.ca slash support, guys. There's a bunch of, uh, a ton of ways to support the show without that don't cost you any money. Nine out, nine out of ten ways to support the show are free, whether that's reviewing the show wherever you can, sharing the show wherever you can, sending in your stories, your trip reports, your synchros, all that stuff. Um, P.O. Box. Uh, the P.O. Box, there's a contact page, grimerica.ca slash contact. Uh, yeah, we got a great postcard recently from a listener, actually at night of the No Agenda Roundtable 2 from oh, Vancouver yeah. Island, and it was a Sasquatch on a paddleboard, and he donated 3333. Thank you very much. Kyle, Kyle, you are. Kyle brought us a postcard from Roswell. Oh, where's that? It's still in my truck. Oh, of course. Well, it'll never make it to the studio. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> It's in the truck with the rest of the people. And Kyle, will never, for. Kyle will never hear this. So. <laughs> Unless he's closet listening. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, check out grammarica.ca slash support, guys. We, we should actually put the honey doobie do list onto the support page at the bottom. So it's all there. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah. so then everything would be on the support page. Uh, but, yeah, if you can, when you can is all we ask. Um, what else you got, buddy? That's it. That's it. Right around 20 that's minutes. It. That's probably good. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, yeah, just uh, enjoy this great chat with Randall. We get into some crazy stuff at the end a little bit. We switch gears and then we go back. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it gets a little we it gets a little hairy at points, but it's good. <laughs> it's good because we get into a ton of stuff that we've never even come close to talking about with Randall yeah. yet. So yeah, and it's always good to remember that. We have to keep in mind what's happened in the past and how catastrophe has struck and the earth has changed a lot fast, like fast. Yeah. So, and we're sitting here worried about this, uh, 
this significant, insignificant uh, temperature fluctuation when, you know, we could be blown away any day by a fucking asteroid or... Well, Fenton thinks within the next 20 years. Yeah. So that's kind of a downer. Yeah. I was thinking, should I get some canned food? Because I feel like we're in a spot that'll probably be okay this time. I think that's why they're building all those hotels up by the airport. Yeah. Well, we're, we're at high level. I mean, we've got we've big got, sky here. We're, we've got big sky. We're safe that way. We're a mile high. Yeah. Might not be any food. I was thinking about ordering Stand, one of those prep things. Start like, sending spam to the P.O. box so we can stockpile it in the Hey, area. actually, we still got some spam up there. We got spam. We got Real a bunch spam. of teriyaki spam that someone shipped from Hawaii. It must have cost a fucking fortune. <laughs> I was looking at going to Hawaii, and it's fucking insane. Yeah. So I don't know. It probably costs like $300 to ship that spam. Here. Yeah. Anyway, guys, uh, enjoy the chat with the one and only Randall Carlson. for this very special episode with uh, an old favorite of the show, Randall Carlson. And we've also got Cyrus here to help us out with this one. He's a friend of uh, Grimerica. Oh, I'm losing my voice all of a sudden. <clears throat> Good timing. Good timing. So, Ra- so Randall's been here before. He's a rogue scholar. We talked about uh, sacred geometry, catastrophism, geology. We're going to be getting into climate change. Uh, he's going to be on Joe Rogan again coming up on May 16th. That should be a really interesting show. And before uh, we lose our chance to to plug some of his stuff, go to Sacred Geo uh, International. Put links in the show notes. They've got sales on the DVDs and their classes. And it's uh, Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of Catastrophe. And there's 33% off with the coupon code GRIAMERICA. Now, they're raising money for a podcast. They're going to be launching like a Gnosis series of nice little tidbits, 20, 30 minutes of Randall. You'll get like all the Randall you can handle soon enough, as soon as they raise enough money. So everybody head to, head to the site, Sacred Geometry, uh, Geometry International. And uh, yeah, help, help out uh, these guys. So anyways, before, uh, before too long there, Randall, it's good to have you back. Thanks for all your patience getting all set up here. Well, it's great to be back, and, and, and thanks. I think we've got a new tagline here, all the Randall you can handle. <laughs> yeah, I, think I this like is, that one, too. That works for me. I think this is episode five. It replaces five. Randall the Vandal, anyway. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, I mean, how many times, what is this, the third time on your show, fourth time? This is fourth. five. Five. That's right. <clears throat> and two are in studio. Two are in studio, right. Yeah, I got good memories of that. Being up there, hanging with you guys. Absolutely. What was that summer before last? When was that? That was the summer before last. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Summer before last. So 2015, right? That's yeah. right. That and, was a fun little yeah. trip. 
and lots lots happened great. since then. Like you've, uh, I meant I meant to mention at the beginning here too that you've uh, your work's been mentioned in Graham, Graham Hancock's book Magician of the Gods since that trip. Since that trip, right? Yeah, and you've yeah, done... because I guess let's see, was that before or after I spent a couple of weeks with him on the road? He was after. doing research for on the on the catastrophism and the floods and stuff. So um, I think that was yeah, just that was before. after. Was... No, that would have been after. Oh, after okay, because it was the summer but you right were after on the before, paradigm, though too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, you was on before too. That's right. Right. And actually, yeah, well, uh, hopefully, we can do it again later this summer because um, there's a lot. There's still a lot of work to do up in that area, putting the pieces together. Especially since the, it's getting out there a little bit more now. It's you know gonna. I'm sure it's gonna get challenged by some of the mainstream defenders. So. <laughs> Um, you know, I would like to make sure that I've got all the pieces in place, although that, that probably will never happen because it's such a complex, massive scenario to try to decipher. But, um, yeah, I, and plus not only the interest of, of solving a mystery like this, but just being in that country is just, it, it makes it for me. It just psychologically, I'm like a different person when I get out of the city and I'm out there in the the big sky country and the mountains and the rivers and the forests and the meadows yeah that's element right there i've been back and forth to lake louise six times in the last two <laughs> weeks six times in two weeks now maybe three weeks yeah but, uh yeah. oh yeah because you guys were putting up that canopy over yeah, there on yeah. the, on the um, yeah is it making you realize how beautiful it is out here darren you know by the last time i was sick of it Really? The last trip, I was just like, oh, my God, it's so far. And, <laughs> but, really yeah, the first year, I mean, you can't really ask for a better commute. The yeah. problem is, like, the road, the speed limit between Banff and Lake Louise is 90 kilometers. Oh, there's lots of cars. Brutal, it's really yeah. painfully slow. That's slow, yeah. So, so we've been hearing a lot about this in the news lately. There's been that uh, those carvings that... Uh, People were yeah. like, it was going all over the place and it seemed to match exactly what you've been talking about. Well, yeah. And, and I haven't really had a chance to go through um, the whole analysis to see how credible it is. I mean, certainly I, I've seen the gist of it and it, it certainly does support the scenario we've been working on. But, you know, again, um, until I've gone through it myself, I, I don't know, it, you know whether this connections are spurious or whether it really, uh, you know, is, is, um, Believable. I'm just going to have to go through it. I have the article. Uh, I've printed out the that, that uh, appeared in the what is Mediterranean Archaeology Journal. And um, again, like I said, I have I've not yet gone through it. I will. Um, I've been focusing lately on just trying to understand the controversies surrounding the um, Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, because you know that is ignited a, a storm of controversy since it was first proposed in 2007, which is an idea that I've been working on for probably close to a quarter of a century. But, uh, you know, even that, that uh, trip I did out there when I was in Canada in 1999 was looking for field evidence that the melting of the ice was possibly triggered by some type of a cosmic impact. So wow. I was working on that at least at least by then and i had actually formulated <clears throat> excuse me i had formulated i think the idea initially in the late 80s or early 90s but didn't start getting out in the field until the late 90s to actually 
see if there was anything in the field that could verify or refute the idea. And everything that I found convinced me that, yeah, the, the, the melting, the scale of the melting was, was phenomenal. The, um, the scenario of a, of a big lake in western Montana, Lake Missoula, being held in by an ice dam, I found um, increasing uh, amounts of field evidence that were inconsistent with that scenario. So, you know, again, the, the conventional scenario being that there was this huge lake somewhere between 525 and 600 and some cubic miles in volume, depending on whose research you look at, held in by an ice dam. It was 2,100 feet deep uh, in the area right there at the um, border of Montana and Idaho in the Clark Fork Valley. Uh, somewhere in there was the um, glacial ice dam lake water interface, according to the conventional theory. And at that point, the uh, water in the Clark Fork Valley was over 2,000 feet deep, which uh, in my readings and discussions with um, civil engineers and with glaciologists and so forth, seems to me to be a thoroughly untenable idea because when we look at modern examples of ice-dammed lakes, they're utterly minuscule compared to um, you know, the scenario of Lake Missoula. Now, uh, I, some people apparently have listened to some of the things that I've said and, and, and misconstrued, saying, well, what are you saying, that there was no, no lake because there were shorelines there? And I absolutely, I've seen those shorelines, you know, a hundred times photographed them. I followed the shorelines throughout the basin of Lake Missoula. But, um, you know, the question is, is when, when it goes back to the original research in the 1920s and 1930s by J. Harlan Bretz, you know, most of the objections, in fact, all of the objections to the mega flood theory was that, uh, well, you can't provide a source for the water on the scale required for your this erosional complex that you're looking at in Washington called the Channel Scabland. And since you don't have a source for the water, then the floods didn't happen. <clears throat> what happened, of course, eventually was that J.T. Pardee, who worked for the U.S. Geological Survey, was surveying these mountain basins um, in the Clark Fork River watershed in western Montana. And, you know, first of all, found way back in 1910, found the, the shorelines on the mountainsides, particularly the ones around the Missoula Basin, you can actually see the shorelines quite prominently from the University of Montana campus. And, um, and he also looked at the sediments <clears throat> on the valley floor um, throughout the basin, and, and they were, you know, typical uh, alluvial deposits, thick alluvial deposits, which led him to believe that there had been a lake. He drew upon the idea uh, first put out by T.C., geologist T.C. Chamberlain, uh, back in about 1896, I think it was, that there had been, who, who had also seen the shorelines and theorized that there had been a great glacial lake held in by an ice dam somewhere to the west. And so J.T. Pardee picked up on that idea. And um, this was in the, you know, like I said, 1910. It was his first ever um, scientific paper that he published as a, a young geologist. The last paper he did as a professional geologist, 1942 or 43, right in there, was the follow-up paper on Lake Missoula. It was entitled Unusual Currents in Glacial Lake Missoula, um, which I find an interesting phrase to use, unusual currents, because 
what made them unusual was because in the interim between 1910 and the early 1940s, he had discovered the gigantic ripple fields mm. that he didn't know about back in, in 1910. So this is what led him to, to coin the phrase unusual currents, because when you have a ripple field that's 10 miles long and current ripples that are you know composed of, of boulders that are 30, 40, 50 feet in height and two to 300 feet in wavelength, the current that would create such current ripples is could be characterized as unusual. So, you know, basically, uh, I questioned this scenario. I questioned, is it possible that there could be that much water held in by a 100% stable glacial ice dam? Um, and the more I looked at it, the more implausible the scenario seemed to me. Um, and because as I learned about glacial ice, I realized, well, you know, you've got basically a continuum of, of glaciers that go from a very solid, stable polar glacier all the way to a temperate glacier that's riding upon a layer of water that's literally on the base of the, uh, of the ice sheet. And the, 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 the temperate glaciers themselves are, you know, um, filled with uh, fractures and cracks and uh, apertures that reach from the surface all the way to the base of the ice that are called moulins. There's interstitial network cavities. Um, so, you know, water, I mean, glacial ice is not a material that would be conducive to retaining water at any significant pressure. So, uh, but in order to fill a, a basin to a depth of 2,100 feet, that works out to be about 960 some pounds per square inch at the base of the ice dam. And if you think about that, that's in the north, think about, you know, 900, and it works out to be, I think, a right around between 60 and 70 tons per square foot, which is about the weight of a Sherman tank. So imagine that you've got a cubic block of ice and you set a, the weight of a Sherman tank on it. How, how you know, which is going to win, obviously. So that was my point is that, wait a second, you guys are just, you know, you've accepted this idea that there was an ice dam. It's been uh, perpetuated and repeated over and over and over and over again. Nobody has really gone into the question, is this even a plausible scenario? And when you go to look in the field, what you discover, here, here's what I think they did. They, they took the source of, the, of Brett's flood water, put it into western Montana and said there was this big lake here, five to 600 cubic miles of water, right? Okay, now at the same time, you've got this ice mass, which has to be 100% stable in order to retain the water to that kind of pressure Right? But in order to have that stable ice mass, you have to have a polar climate. But if you've got a polar climate, then where the hell is all this water coming from? The water can only be coming from rainfall or meltwater. There's no other source, rainfall or meltwater. Either one of those or any combination of those implies the climate that's quite warm, which is completely inconsistent with the idea of a stable polar ice mass. The implication is that you have to have a tempered glacier and a tempered glacier is going to be completely in, uh, incapable of holding water back to any significant pressures. And then when we look at modern examples, that's what we exactly what we see. We see uh, glacial outburst floods in in up in British Columbia, Alaska, Iceland. They're very prominent. And what you see there is that these reservoirs of water that are literally less than a one thousandth the volume of Lake Missoula will break through their ice dams when they get to be between roughly one and 300 feet thick or deep. 
And at that point, the ice can no longer retain the water in that pressure. It forces its way through the ice. The ice fails. The water flows out in, a, in an outburst flood. In the Icelandic term, it's yokelops. And uh, then the lake drains. Sometimes the, the ice will reseal, the lake will refill, and then it'll, they call them self-dumping glacial lakes. So what the geologists have done is they have taken that scenario of model, modern glacial lakes, modern outburst floods, and scaled up by three orders of magnitude and said, well, yeah, we understand it's a big extrapolation, but that's the model we're going to uh, invoke here to explain this. I'm coming along and I'm saying, well, what you guys have done is you've put all of this water into western Montana. So you said, okay, first of all, Brent's floods couldn't happen because you didn't have a source of the water. Then here comes the idea of a glacial lake. And they say, oh, okay, good, great. Okay, now we have a modern example, a uniformitarian, consistent with the uniformitarian principle, which is that we try to explain all past geological change by reference to modern uh, phenomena. All we got to do is extrapolate it up by three, three orders of magnitude and boom, we're, we, we've got an explanation. But what they have really done, you see, is they have just pushed the can, they kicked the can down the road, so to speak. Because while Brett's couldn't come up with a source for the water, RD comes up and says, okay, here's this lake. So everybody jumps on the, the, okay, here's this big lake in Western Montana, but nobody's asking the question I've been asking for a quarter of a century, where the hell did that water come from? You see, and so, in the, in the travels that we've done and in the, in the things that we did together uh, summer before last, what I was doing was documenting irrefutable evidence that the water came out of, the, uh, out of British Columbia, that it flowed down these north-south trending valleys, such as the Rocky Mountain Trench, which we crossed together, um, the, the Columbia Valley, the uh, Purcell Trench, all of these valleys that anybody listening who wants to look on Google Earth, you could, you could see those valleys. They were all filled with huge volumes of ice. That ice is now gone. There was no place for it to go when it melted except to drain south uh, into western Montana and over eastern Washington. So then the question becomes, when you begin to understand the, the scale of these floods, the phenomenal, unbelievable scale of these floods is that, well, if they're produced by sudden catastrophic rapid melting, then we have to have some kind of an agency that can provoke that kind of melting. And that's where you come into well, what terrestrial source of energy is. There's not volcanic because, you know, that kind of energies would not exist um, in the area of the Cordilleran ice sheet over southern British Columbia. But the thing is, see, is that at the same time that this was going on, you had massive melting of the Laurentide ice sheet as well, that, you know, that's, that's centered over eastern Canada and Hudson Bay. And so, and a lot of the other... Uh, journeys that I've done. I've visited or traversed various river valleys that have headed onto the ice sheet, such as, you know, the Missouri and the Mississippi and the St. Croix and the, the Ohio and the Mississinawa and, and a number of others. And in every single case, you can see the evidence of catastrophic meltwater flows completely submerging these valleys. And uh, so these were going on at the same time that the Missoula floods were going on. And to me, it's like, you got to find a common explanation for all of this. And this is what seems to have eluded a lot of the guys that are doing this work um, because they're still clinging to this. Uh, well, because for one thing, once you begin to look at the, 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 the vast scale of the erosion and sedimentary features that were left in the wake of these floods, they're so vast and they're so complex 
that the original scenario of one gigantic flood coming from a point source, which was the mouth of the Clark Fork River in the area of Lake Ponderay in northern Idaho, could not explain the vast scale and complexity of these. So they began to add more and more floods to the, um, you know, to the whole model until now it's up to like 89 floods, which they're saying basically, okay, so 89 times the ice dam formed, filled the lake, and then the lake broke out. And I'm saying, well, no, the scenario of even one lake filling to 2,100 feet deep is implausible. 89 times is is ridiculous. Um, and they basically are doing that by looking at varves, back flood varves that are backwash varves that are found in some of the uh, contiguous valleys like the San Poil River and and the John Day River and others. Um, and I've studied those and looked at those. And I think that basically we have to understand this melting is actually, there's two regimes. There is this catastrophic rapid meltdown, which created literal freshwater tsunamis gushing off the ice sheet. In the wake of that, there was uh, substantial climate changes that, that brought the planet out of the ice age, which is part of the mystery we're still trying to figure out. But you basically have to get rid of a total of about 6 million cubic miles of ice mantling North America between 14,000 and about eight or 9,000 years ago. And I think it was done basically in two scales of events. One or twice, once or twice, you had this massive instantaneous melting of huge volume, maybe tens of thousands or even several hundred thousand cubic miles of ice converted instantly into water. Then in the aftermath of that, you had a bunch of residual ice that melted away over the next couple of few thousand years. And I think that what's happened is the, the mainstream looking at this has not been able to, um, has not differentiated between these two flood regimes that you have one where you, you, you might have literally like in the, in the uh, Camas Prairie region of Western Montana, uh, that's where you've got this ripple train that's, that's almost 10 miles long and you've got these massive current ripples that are you know 30 to 50 feet in amplitude and two to 300 feet in wavelength there the water flow through camas prairie and anybody uh you know listening to this that wants to go um uh look on google earth I, i'll pull up some images here in a minute um you'll be able to see this what i'm talking about this massive ripple field the only here, here's what you got a picture and this is the thing that's that's virtually impossible to picture, but, you know, when you're standing here in the field, that's the best way to try to, to get some sense of what we're talking about here. But you, you would have a river, picture this, you got a river that's moving 50 to 60 miles an hour. It's 10 to 11 miles wide and 1,400 feet deep. Now, there's nothing, nothing even remotely close to that happening on earth today, not even remotely close. <laughs> so, when we're talking about events like that, the uniformitarian principle only can go so far to explain that. You know, I mean, clearly that level of melting is something beyond um, anything in our modern experience. Yeah, regardless of what so, caused it, right? I mean, it, it, that image yeah. that you guys have on the screen, so for people that are watching on, on video or whatever, that looks like an image of what the ice was like back then, like say 14,000 years ago over North America and yeah. Europe. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just and look at, like, no matter what caused that, that twice, like, melting it in two stages, that puts everything into perspective for sure as far as, 
you know, climate change nowadays compared to climate change back then. I mean, look at how most of North America is covered yeah. and most of Europe. Where, where does that go down in, in Europe to like uh, to France well, kind of? It covers or? all of Scandinavia and it reaches down into what is now the British Isles, which, of course, at that time was not the British Isles because the North Sea didn't exist. Wow. Uh, because, you know, with that much ice uh, accumulated on the on the land surface, it dropped ocean levels worldwide about 400 feet. 400 feet. And this is why there was a, con- there, you know, this is why uh, North America and Asia were a continuous landmass during this time. Um, and click to the next, I'll go to the next image here, and you can see um, there, you look up there, you'll see Alaska, and you'll see that the, that the land bridge is actually more massive than the state of Alaska. It's not some narrow little strip of land. It's a massive huge swath of land that is now underwater. And um, that was also highly densely populated with megafauna. It was a lot of woolly mammoths and Colombian mammoths and mammothus imperator, these great, uh, you know, proboscidians that lived during the, the end of the Ice Age, which, of course, now they're completely extinct. So, yeah, when you realize that that there was that much ice, and then at this point there is no agreed upon explanation for what happened to that ice, how the world could so quickly transition from the ice full glacial age into the interglacial age that we're in now. And when you go back in Earth history and you realize that this has happened multiple times throughout the entire Pleistocene, which is a little over two and a half million years in length, uh, You've got to go, well, wait a second. If we don't understand climate changes of that magnitude and that severity that have happened regularly in Earth history, how can we possibly say that the debate is on climate change is now settled? Exactly. You know, simple question. That's the question I ask, and I never get an answer to it. <laughs> Usually what it is is usual response is to ignore me, run out of the room, or call me a name. Uh, come up with some insults. You're just a climate change denier. You're a Trump supporting climate change <laughs> denier. Well, they're yeah. intellectually impotent. They can't keep up. So they start yelling and they start name calling it. And then they over talk you. They don't let you get your information out there because your information's threatening. It is threatening. It's threatening to some agendas that are now being pushed with a lot of, with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people trying to trying to get this idea out there that now the the, the sole cause of climate change is human activity. And like Bill Nye, the science guy, and his butt stuff song that he's got out now. Yeah, you know, listen, Bill Nye. I tell you, I, you know, I don't know even what to think about that guy. He's really a joke. Well, I grew um, up in Seattle. He was <clears throat> an actor on a local TV show here called Almost Live, and he had a character. That was called Speed Walker. That was his superhero power. He speed walked and caught his uh, his villains. And he stopped a guy from stealing the space needle once. But that character never really caught. But Bill Nye, the science guy, kind of caught on a little bit. And then he just took that ball and ran with it. He's mm-hmm. not a scientist. Never was a scientist. He was an engineer at Boeing. Yes. But scientists, no. He's just he's just shooting off propaganda because he it it signs his check for him. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. He's he's 
he's in with he in in with the group now, you know, and you'll hear him say things like, "Oh, I guess was it uh, one of the interviews he did recently, maybe on with Tucker Carlson or somebody, where he was saying, <laughs> yes, well, we scientists, we believe this.' Like he's now a spokesman for this, you know, completely consistent authoritarian body where everybody is in, you know, om, omniscient body of scientists that are all in agreement. And anybody who questions, you know, any any portion of that agreement, you know, is now a climate change denier or in the payroll of the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, I am waiting for my first check. When it comes, I will probably have some very interesting things to spend it on, but uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> when Cameron and I actually went to a, uh, a coffee house uh, presentation of six, seven years ago by one of Al Gore's um, public relations guys, right, was here in Atlanta. And I, it was so funny because, you know, we're sitting in the audience and Cameron, you know, then when it kind of came to the questions and comments, Cameron raises his hand and he says, well, now, do you understand that, uh, you know, uh, Al Gore's company, uh, Generation Investment Management, uh, stands to make a lot of money if, um, cap and trade is put in place. And immediately somebody was sitting right up there next to the speaker, obviously fawning over this, you know, speaker that worked for Al Gore, immediately turns and says to the whole crowd, well, we obviously have a ringer in the audience. <laughs> By that he meant, you know, that obviously Cameron was a plant and was getting paid off by fossil fuels. Yeah, that was the, the fellow who runs this desmog blog. Um, but that just kind of shows the mindset of how, yeah, how they how they get around anything. You know, they didn't answer the, or even address the question Cameron raised. It was just like, oh, he's he's a ringer, obviously a ringer. So let's not pay any attention to that guy. You know, and I thought I, I found that so amusing. And I'm thinking, Cameron is a ringer. OK, yeah, well, I, you never told me, Cameron, that you were on the payroll of the fossil fuel industry. But uh I'm afraid that's just all too typical. And so the, the, the whole strategy is to shut down debate because, you know, there is many, many questions, unresolved questions about climate change. And, you know, I've been for years advocating the idea that, yeah, the climate changes profoundly over and over again. That's why I find it so ridiculous that somebody calls me a climate change denier, you know, because I've been, you know, I got interested in, in climate change literally about 1975. And I began to do research, which was known, you know, what was known at that point, particularly about paleoclimatology. I got, was very interested even from the time I was a kid. And, you know, growing up in Minnesota, right where we lived was near the margin of the great ice sheet, the, the Laurentide ice sheet, the Southern margin. So the, the, the geomorphic effects of, of, the glacier age was everywhere about where I grew up as a kid. And so I got really fascinated by that whole phenomenon very young. And, and by the time I was in my mid twenties, it almost became an obsession. So I began going through the, the, the literature, um, in my archives, I've got probably somewhere between three and 4,000 articles on various aspects of climate change that I have and read the lion's share of them. Um, that's why it's, I, I, again, I find it quite amusing when somebody says, well, what do the real scientists think? You know, well, which scientists do you want to talk about? Here? Exactly. You know, so what I are some of your big questions? Want... What are some of your big questions that you have for them then? 
Who me? Yeah, like you, you have a couple. You said you have a couple, quite like big, big questions for for the climate changes that aren't being answered. Like, do you have a, you have a, some information there too with you, like presentation wise, as far as like some of the outstanding sort of issues that aren't being dealt with? Well, you know, the outstanding thing to me is this 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 um, oscillation between glacial and interglacial ages, which I'm, you know, feel is is extremely important for us to understand because. When we look at the paleoclimatological record that goes back a couple of hundred thousand years now based upon oxygen isotope analysis of, of ice cores extracted from Greenland and Antarctica, from mountain glaciers, from um, deep sea cores, from uh, speleothems in caves, from palynological studies, which is the study of pollen, um, studies of biological uh, and vegetation changes, uh, all of these things put together suggest that there are basically two regimes of change that this planet uh, that describes the totality of change on planet Earth. And one is the kind of uh, degree of change that we've seen in the last seven to 10,000 years in the post Ice Age uh, era, which is called the Holocene. And then that's punctuated on a fairly regular basis by change that is orders of magnitude greater than the background pace of of nor what we would consider normal change and it's that you know those discontinuities those points of discontinuity those event nodes if you want to if you will that that have intrigued me for so long like what is it that suddenly kicks the planet into a whole new mode you know because when you begin to understand how dramatically different the planet was during the late wisconsin period you know from 13, 14,000 years ago, down to about 25 or 30,000 years ago, and you begin to understand how vastly different the planet was and how quickly it changed from that to what it is now. Yeah. You go, okay, well, there's something going on here. We haven't identified it yet, and it seems to happen repeatedly throughout the history of the planet. And when we begin to reconstruct the paleoclimatological record, and we look at these periods of interglacial warmth, such as we have enjoyed for the last 10,000 years, what soon becomes apparent is that, you know, that periods of interglacial warmth, as long as the one we're in now, are the exception to the rule. Oh, yeah. Most of them are five, six, seven thousand years, and then there's a major climate spasm. So, you know, to me, it's like, okay, well, do we just go merrily along, assuming that, you know, this is the way it's going to always be? Or are there times, you know, when, when things shift quite um, you know, quite rapidly, and uh, seems that there is. So then, the question is: is given that you know the the uh, period of the Holocene that we're in now is is basically a duration longer than virtually any other period of interglacial warmth we've seen? Then I, it seems to me the prudent thing is to ask: well, why? What what is this mechanism? And it, until we understand what the mechanism is, we're not going to be able to predict. And so, see, the thing is, is I'm not against uh, us learning about the effects of human beings on climate, not by a long shot. And somehow people think that, you know, they, they get that impression. <clears throat> on the other hand, um, you know, what I'm trying to do is to say, well, yeah, it's humans are one variable in a very complicated equation. Carbon dioxide is one variable in a very complicated equation, but it's not the thing driving climate. And if if we come back here and we start looking at some of the graphs that I have, um, you'll be able to but, see some of the uh, things that I'm talking about. Isn't it true, though, uh, 
a lot of these models that are going for the climate change people who are promoting the fact that mankind's killing the planet, they're going off the fact that we've only been keeping track of the temperature for less than 200 years, right? Yeah, the instrumental temperature. Yeah, and even there, you know, I mean, you go back to the 19th century and our, and our um, you know, our, our um, access to, to temperature data was very sparse, you know, because, um, and, and it's very difficult to go back to, to like 19th and early 20th century temperature data and extrapolate to the planet as a whole. Really, the, the temperature data we've got that we can rely on, it gives us the, 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 the planet as a whole is basically since the late 70s and the 80s when we started getting satellite data in. Um, I remember that being a big uh, point to me when the first time I heard you start talking about it. I never thought about that and never really, I, I guess I never even knew when we started keeping track of the temperature, mm-hmm. but you could study back thousands and thousands of years in the Greenland ice cores, and they're telling us that this this ball that we live on is constantly changing it's uh, it flows up it goes down in the 70s like when you said you started getting really into this stuff uh, didn't they think we were going into another ice age yeah and, and in a way you almost could understand why that would they would think that because number one you know radiocarbon dating came along in the early 1950s and by the early to mid 70s there was enough uh, the the database of radiocarbon dates had been was extensive enough but looking at it, it became obvious that um, the time frame for these changes was a whole lot quicker than anybody had imagined pre-radiocarbon dating. Whereas pre-radiocarbon dating, the assumption was that you know you had 30 or 40 or 50,000 years in order to come out of an ice age or get into an ice age. Once you had radiocarbon dating, it became apparent that no, 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 it was much, much faster than that. Um, you know, rather than 30 or 40 or 50,000 years, you're looking at four or five or 6,000 years. And even within that framework of three or four or 5,000, 6,000 years, um, there were periods, very short periods of maybe a few centuries or even a few decades where the, the bulk of the, the change was concentrated. And I've got up on the screen here now, um, the uh, oxygen isotopes in Greenland. And let's, let's, let's look at that. Can you guys see that? Yep. yep. Yes. Okay, so you've got relative oxygen isotope ratios, and I won't necessarily get into explaining how that works, other than the fact that when you look at this squiggly line, uh, shifts to the left mean uh, the temperature is getting cooler, shifts to the right mean that the temperature is getting warmer. Down the right side of the scale, you see the number 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and then it jumps down to 10. That's the time in thousands of years before present. So at the bottom where you see that number 10, that was 10,000 years ago. Over on the left, you see zero at the top, 1,500 at the bottom. That's the depth of the ice. So at 1,500 meters, which is you know close to a mile in depth, you've gone back down, you've gone back 10,000 years. Oxygen isotope ratios are an indication of the ambient temperature. If you look at that squiggly line, what it's doing is it's showing constant fluctuations in the temperature of two to four degrees, right? Back and forth. If you look down, uh, which would actually at about 8,200 uh, years, what you'll see is that there's a there's a pretty major spike off to the left. 
Mm-hmm. That was a cooling period uh, of about where the climate suddenly cooled about uh, four degrees, minus four degrees. I'm going to go to another um, uh, another slide they here, and you can see if you go like down, you'll dive at like ten thousand years too. <clears throat> yeah, and we're going to come back. To that. You see the eight thousand two hundred year ago cold event. I've got an arrow pointing right to that to that little squiggle that mm-hmm. comes off to the left. That's about a four degree. Then if you go down just below that, along that vertical uh, yellow bar, you see that's the climatic optimum, first phase. The the vertical line represents the modern day temperature. And what you're going to see is that this graph shows the temperature of the northern hemisphere. And even though this is Greenland ice sheet, it's likely that it does represent uh, a, a, a hemispherical uh, shift in temperature. You're going to see that the that the climate is is oscillating back and forth, back and forth around that line. You'll also notice that towards the bottom during the climatic optimum, it's actually warmer. And now I'm going to go to I'm going to, I'm going to take that same graph. I'm going to flip it horizontal. And let's see. Okay, so here I've done a green line, which is um, yeah. Here's the green line, which is uh, roughly modern day temperature. And what you're going to see is there, as you go back almost to that 10,000 years, you're going to see that the squiggle, if you took out that that spike pointing downward, which is the 8,200-year-ago cold snap, it's pretty much above the green line. And then it be, as, as it comes down towards like at 5,000 years, 4,000 years, you see the numbers up at the top. Those are thousands of years. You'll notice two things. You're going to notice that the average, that the trend line is decreasing. So I'll go here. This this graph shows the trend line, and you can actually see the green trend line. What we've had is a steady cooling throughout the last 10,000 years. As the climate has cooled, you'll also see from this graph that the magnitude of the oscillations back and forth has increased. It hasn't decreased. It's increased along with the cooling. So getting back to the question uh, that I think Cyrus was posing about um, is that when you look at this, what you realize is that the um, that the t- temperature has been cooling, and this became apparent when radiocarbon dating started coming online um, in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And you know there was evidence that's coming out showing that well, wait a second, 40 to 50 thousand years ago, when we thought that Canada was completely buried in ice, there were forests growing where the ice was 10,000 years later. So what that did was it constrained the duration of this whole process going from an interglacial to an ice age and back to an interglacial again. And so at the same time that they realized that, there was what's called the little 20th century, mid 20th century cooling. Now, when we come into the 20th century, we're coming out of the little ice age. We're gonna, we'll go to that in a minute here and and we'll talk about that little ice age because the baseline for the, the measuring modern temperature change is one of the coldest periods throughout the entire Holocene. But so what happened was, is you had the little cooling that lasted from the 50s and 60s and the 70s. And maybe it cooled as much as a half a degree after the, the initial warming of the early 20th century. You know that the, that the warmest decade of the whole 20th century was the 1930s, not the 1990s. Um, That's when we had the Dust Bowl? Yes, when we had the Dust Bowl. That was the warmest... Uh, Warmest decade of the 20th century. We had Dr. Okay, so, John Easterbrook on, and he actually maintains that 
He's his original graphs from the '60s and '70s still show the '30s as being hotter than even anything to date. But he says yeah, that yeah. they have been manipulated and they're not showing the real information anymore. Yes, and, and Don Easter book is completely correct on that. We'll link to that um, episode in the show notes if people want to go back and and brush up on that one. Yes, and Don Easterbrook is a very distinguished scientist who knows what he's talking about. And so, if uh, you are listening to the audio, you got to see these graphs. So soon, as soon yeah, as you can, watch this YouTube, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, like most of Randall's really, stuff. <laughs> yeah, they really tell the story. Here. Yeah, you can see the hot. There's a hotting. There's a hotting, a heating trend uh, <laughs> around 2,000 years ago. There's that spike on the right as well. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. a, yeah. I wonder if they were complaining yeah. about fossil fuels then. Uh, yeah, well, when, when did they start driving SUVs? It was somewhere, what, five to 6,000 years ago? Yeah, I think yes. Jesus had I think one. When, yeah. Noah had one. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. Okay, so, so the thing to see, to understand here, to, to, to sum it up, is that you had the little mid, the mid-20th century cooling between the, the 50s and the 70s happening at the same time they realized that interglacial periods were really short-lived. So it was natural to speculate, well, let's see. Uh, We've already exceeded what appears to have been the length of all of the earlier interglacial periods, and the climate is cooling. What does that mean? Of course, here's the big difference. When when the 80s came along, then we started warming again. Now, whether that warming is totally natural, totally human or some combination of both, nobody can say for sure because nobody knows. Even the scientists of the IPCC, if you get them in a corner, they will say, well, we don't know what percentage of the warming since the 80s up to roughly 18 years ago when the climate more or less began to stabilize because it hasn't really gotten much warmer in the last 18 years. they will not be able to tell you. Well, let's see, it's 45% natural and 55% anthropogenic. They don't know, uh, and they can't say, you know. I do think that the initial, that there was, is a human contribution, um, which was probably the result of increasing the carbon dioxide concentrations from, you know, 280 at the end of the last ice age parts per million down to about 350. But the thing you got to understand about carbon dioxide is that it's plant life, no? Yeah. Yes. When you get down to a couple of hundred parts per million, you're talking about photosynthesis shutting down. And and if you read the article I've got online, Redemption of the Beast, it's it's an extensive analysis of the carbon cycle. It's like 92 pages, and it's fully referenced going back a century or more studies on the carbon cycle. And people need to read that and realize that this is one side of the story that that nobody's hearing, you know, um, I know and my, it's, my it's up online. If you supplement oh, yeah, CO2. Absolutely grow better. Yes. Well, my dad, I, I grew up in one of those houses where, uh, my dad liked to, uh, grow plants inside with these really big bright lights. Yeah. And he used to bleed, uh, CO2, uh, canisters into the room. Yes. And they would explode. They grew way faster, way bushier, yes. way healthier. Yes, yes, and and yes. So, I, I really would encourage people to 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 bite the bullet, go on there and read this entire article. Um, Where is that it's again? It's an essay. It's called "Redemption of the Beast." Okay. And it's beast on, is just a metaphor for carbon dioxide that I use because yeah, 
you know, carbon is six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. So it's kind of cool to think, ah, yeah, here's a metaphor, the beast. Almost like it's a for a reason. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyways, let's, let's go on and look at this graph because this graph really shows us some pretty dramatic uh, things here. Um, so now what we've seen is basically temperature changes over the last 10,000 years. And when we look at the vertical version of the graph, as you said, I think, Darren, you see it kind of sweeping over to the left as you get right to the bottom. Because what right. we're seeing there is the temperature coming out of the ice age, right? So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that graph and I'm going to extend it down so you can begin to see what happens pre-Holocene. Oh, <clears throat> Jesus. Holy. Yeah. <laughs> so, whoa. Yeah, that's that's an appropriate response right there. And and what I'm trying to get people to realize is that whatever's driving the climate pre ten thousand years ago, we don't know. We don't know what that is. Now, yeah. here here's one thing to look, consider: <clears throat> is that carbon dioxide driving it? I don't think so. Hell no. No, it can't be. And even if it was, what that's implying is that there must be some gigantic reservoir source of carbon dioxide outgassing that we completely don't know about. If that's the case, then how can we say the science is settled? On the other hand, if it's not carbon dioxide, which I don't think it is that's driving that, we look at that graph and we go, how in the world can we say that the climate change debate is settled when we can't explain that degree of change? I was not expecting that when 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 that hit the screen. Oh my god! Yeah, because I was just I was just thinking that I wanted to see that. I was going to ask him for what what happened before. I was then. thinking the same thing. So, <laughs> so you've got this huge variance as well from like fifteen thousand years ago to to a hundred and something thousand years ago, and then it even gets way way hotter um, yeah. at that point. So I mean, it's just all over the place. I mean, look at how steady it's been actually over the last ten ten thousand years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's it's all over the place. <clears throat> it's not challenging yeah, it's anybody to, you know, who thinks the science is settled to please explain that to me then, because you obviously know enough to say that the debate is over. So would you please explain that to me? I would like to know. I'm curious. That that yes. picture in itself destroys their argument. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean the only the only thing I've been able to come up with is that with all of those woolly mammoths farting then perhaps that had something to do with it. Definitely, what happened, you know, do you think, there around like 120,000 years ago? Would that be an impact as well? I don't know. That could have been I Mount Toba. That, Maybe that I was Mount Toba. Think, do you know where Mount Toba was on that? It's about 72,000 years. And it's probably, you know, if you come up, let's see. I'm going to swoop Oh, yeah, that spike that goes up to like zero. It almost was warm enough to unfreeze water. Yeah, I was reading. Yeah, and then it goes back down again. There's a, like a big <laughs> oscillation there just below uh, about halfway between 50,000 and 100,000. That's probably Toba right there. Would be my first And are we guess. going off of Celsius or Fahrenheit here? This is Celsius. Okay. So to get Fahrenheit, you multiply about by 1.8. And add 32. Hmm. Yeah, so, and and if we look at that, <clears throat> the last big spasm coming out of the ice age, you'll notice that there are that are there are two spikes there. 
of warming spike. And uh, let's see if I've got a uh, zero, if I can hone in a little. Uh, yeah, I was reading this book. Uh, we're going to have a guest on next week about the um, into Africa theory as opposed to out of Africa. And he talks about Mount uh -huh. Toba and the changes around that, like the the uh, how it fucked up the earth for for weeks afterwards, <clears throat> actually longer than that. Yeah. And uh, the sea level rises were incredible. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the, the destruction from one eruption. Right, yeah. So yeah, clearly then it, that what it shows us that there are, there are natural forces that we have to contend with. Now, can you see my, my cursor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mouse cursor, okay. What I'm doing here is I'm, I'm looking here, this is, this is the, uh, the coming out of the Ice Age events. And you'll notice that right here, uh, at about 14,600 years ago, there's a massive warming spike. You see that? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Uh, hovering over it with my mouse. Then it, it sawtooths back and forth down into, back into full glacial cold. You'll notice here at about 20,000 years ago, you see it's kind of warming. And, and at the same time it's warming, the amplitude of those changes begins to decline somewhat. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, Boom, you've got this huge warming spike. It sawtooths back into this uh, period of full glacial cold. And then you have this second warming spike right here. It's almost like the first warming spike was not capable of kicking the planet out of the ice age. And it shot back into the full depth of cold, which is called the Younger Dryas. And then it finally, then the second warming spike. I look at the flooding events as being associated with those two warming spikes. Yeah. It just makes sense. And the, com and, the com and the comet impact hitting hitting something uh, at the beginning of the first spike kind of to trigger the whole thing? Yeah, we don't, there, there are no, there's no hard evidence showing an impact at 14.6, but I don't think anybody's really looked. The problem is, is that, it, well, the, the, the impact proxies show up at 12,008 oh, to okay, 12,900 yeah. years ago. And that's right there where you see this, um, where the where the um, uh, where the graph just plummets off down into the that spike of glacial cold off to the left. So at twelve thousand between twelve thousand eight hundred twelve thousand nine hundred years ago, these uh, independent teams have been finding uh, impact proxies such as nano diamonds, microspherals, magnetic grains. Um, a platinum spike has been found in uh, the Greenland ice core. Uh, several of the sites have have um, have iridium spikes. Um, so there's 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 a number of these impact proxies that have been found, and all over the planet, right? Well, not yet all over the planet, but uh, all over North America, uh, Europe, as far as uh, in Syria, they've found a, a black mat, which is a a, a transition, a younger Dryas uh, transition uh, period. Um, and into Venezuela, Mexico. So it's, it covers a large swath of the planet. But as has been said, no one really knows yet the extent of these materials. They could go beyond what they've already seen. It's just that as they keep extend the field of their investigations, they keep finding this stuff. And of course, it has triggered a major controversy because there are factions that do not want to suddenly take away the possibility that, that has been promoted for you know, decades now that human beings hunted these great megafauna to extinction. <laughs> we'll come back to that because uh, these megafauna, you know, uh, 
Frank Hibben, uh, anthropologist from the University of New Mexico back in the 40s and 50s, did extensive research. He was one of the early catastrophists who looked at the extinction-level event at the end of the Pleistocene and concluded that it was a major catastrophic episode that happened. And um, his eyewitness testimony is quite compelling. What he did was he uh, followed the these uh, gold miners who were using these high-pressure hydraulic hoses to blast away the permafrost muck up in Alaska looking for gold veins. And, and what he was interested in was not so much the gold. He was interested in what kind of fossilized remains that those that was being uncovered as they blasted away the permafrost. And his eyewitness testimony is, is quite compelling. And uh, wrote a book, I think it was called The Lost Americans back in, in the 1940s, where he describes these remains. And it, it's so obviously some type of incredible catastrophe that, that exterminated many of these animals and left them frozen in the Alaskan muck. And it's clear from... The um, the descriptions, you know, this they had nothing to do with with human hunters, because we're supposed to believe again that that paleo Indian small bands of roving paleo Indian hunters, uh, using spears and on foot, were able to exterminate somewhere around forty million animals, large animals, on four continents within a geological eye blink. You know, and then not eat them, and then not well, no, you couldn't have eat them. I mean, how how is you you know exactly, just waste it. Well, it's pretty clear yeah. with that spike that on your graph it correlates to that extinction, right? I mean, how could you? Oh, yeah. Not how the, could you not investigate that? <clears throat> right. The extinction happens <clears throat> between you look between warming spike, the the lower warming spike and the upper warming spike. The entire extinction episodes happens in between those two <laughs> warming <Yeah>. spikes. <laughs> you know, yeah. so like well. So, so now, you know, there's this faction, like I said, that wants to dis, dis, completely discredit the idea that there could have been something outside Earth that could have been the trigger, right? Because, and here's the reason, is because we're now seeing a revival of this, what is called the, the human overkill hypothesis, which, uh, and, and the reason for that is, is because there are factions now that are really promoting this idea that we're in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction in the history of the earth, which we have certainly caused extinction of some, some species. Absolutely. I'm not, uh, I'm not arguing with that, but what I'm saying is that to say that we are now in a, um, a period of mass extinction equivalent to the late Ordovician or the late Devonian or the, the, the Triassic or the Permian, the Permian Triassic or the Cretaceous Tertiary is is just silly. It's nonsense because when you begin looking at the circumstances associated with the five great mass extinctions in Earth history, if you take the middle of that spectrum, which is the KT uh, boundary where the dinosaurs became extinct, you know you had well, I mean, try to imagine what a six mile asteroid the size of Mount Everest slamming into the earth at, you know, 10 to 20 times the speed of a rifle bullet, you know, <laughs> basically is lofting enough debris into the atmosphere to bring a shroud of darkness around the planet that would last for years, triggering global wildfires, the collapse of probably every fault line on earth, the triggering of massive volcanic eruptions and outflowing of basaltic lava and the extrusion of massive amounts of, 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 you know, uh, acidic pollution into the atmosphere. Um, 
you know, and then that followed by uh, the onset of, of glacial cold in the dark. It's like, wait a second. I, the last time I looked outside, things were pretty nice. We weren't in the midst of a period of global wildfires, firestorms. We weren't uh, experiencing a cosmic winter or months of endless darkness. Um, so, you know, to me, you just, you know, wait a minute, you're comparing and saying now is comparable to what happened during the Cretaceous tertiary transition. I just, you know, you don't, you know, you don't further the, 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 the cause by exaggerating so much, you know, and again, you know, obviously we have to learn how to live in harmony with this planet. Obviously we do, but we also have to understand that this planet has been able to take care of itself for millions of years and even a small asteroid impact, which the planet has suffered countless thousands of times, is going to completely dwarf anything that humans have yet done. You know, if you, if you look at the, imagine, if you will, nuclear war using, if, if we had an all-out nuclear war back in the late 60s and early 70s, when the, when the nuclear arsenals of the superpowers were at their peak megatonnage, looking at about 12,000 megatons, right? And that would be, you know, if we were to unleash those nuclear weapons, that would be a catastrophe of unprecedented proportions within history. It would probably, well, it would clearly bring civilization to an end. Um, well, even one small asteroid is going to be thousands of times more powerful than every nuclear weapon in the arsenal detonated all at once. And the Earth has repeatedly suffered those kinds of impacts throughout its history. So, you know, we have to begin to, we have to have a context. When we start talking about change and what humans are doing to the planet, you know, we have to have a perspective. And the perspective is, is yeah, this planet has managed to survive things that are a lot more severe than anything we have yet done. Um, you know, it's, it's estimated that the KT impact might have released energies in the scale of 100 million megatons. I mean, 100 million megatons for crying out loud. Do you have any idea what that means and what that would what that would do to the environment and the planet? Um, it's it's almost impossible to to um, to visualize. But basically, what you're talking about is more than a thousand times greater than the entire nuclear arsenal of the superpowers un, un blown up all at once. So you know, again, we got to put this stuff in perspective and realize that the planet has amazing recuperative capabilities. There's just no other conclusion because we now know that, that catastrophes on this scale have happened repeatedly in the history of the earth. And my point is, is that what the, the fragile uh, variable in this whole equation is human civilization. It would not take, if we go back and just look at that spike from 8,200 years ago, a spike like that of cooling would end civilization as we know it. And we don't know what drove that, right. but what's likely is that, that it, it was probably the final draining of Lake Agassiz into the North Atlantic that triggered that. But once again, it was a completely natural phenomenon. It was part of this process of deglaciation. So uh, It's hard to believe that there was human beings surviving through that, you know, past uh, 10,000 yes. years. When you look at that, that is just... It's almost impossible to believe that that we even survived it. How long? How old is the oldest skeleton that we know of? 
Uh, oldest modern skeletons, you know, have been dated between 150 and 180,000 years old. And they live so, through that. Yeah. So, yes. And, and, and here's the thing. It, w- it would be very difficult to establish any kind of a, a, a civilization when when the planetary environment is doing this. But on the other hand, when you begin to realize the extent of the, the change that has been imposed on this planet, and you go back before that first warming spike, and you realize, as I've done by traveling, you know, I've spent, I mean, I've lost count, 50, 60, 70,000 miles I've logged up in the field over the last 20 years, documenting these uh, evidence for catastrophic geomorphic change. And what you realize is that, well, whatever existed on the planet prior to this, you know, lurching out of the ice age, we really wouldn't expect to find much of anything. You know, when you when you when you're standing on a landscape and you're realizing, okay, in front of me is a chasm ten thousand or, or uh, a thousand feet deep, and this was this amount of bedrock was probably removed in a matter of two or three weeks. You know, so or you're standing somewhere and you're realizing where I'm standing now, before this melting was five hundred or a thousand feet below the surface of the ground. How can we say? What was up on the surface of the ground before these events happened? We just don't know. And clearly, um, it brings up really interesting questions to me about the nature of human beings that were living during these times. Yeah. Um, When was Gobekli Tepe covered up? Can you point that out on that graph at all? That would have been right about the same time. I mean, the the dating of the the plaster on the walls is right at 11,600 years. And that's basically right there where that second warming spike is. Yeah, yeah. Right there. Now, from what I understand from, from discussions with Graham and in, in his book is that, you know, there may be much older portions of the structure that have not been uh, excavated or dated yet. So I'm just waiting to see what. Oh, there's a, there's a lot they haven't even gotten to yet. They're trying to take their time, right? Do it correctly. Yeah, I think so. So that'll be interesting to see if it does get much older than that. And and, um, and if you blew up, uh, if you sort of zoomed in a little bit to more recent times, like the last thousand years, like or the or the dark ages and the medieval warming period. I mean, there's even some pretty recent changes that would um, that would make us uh, sweat a little bit. Yeah, and if you look there, if you if, if I, I've just scrolled up a bit, if you look at where it's a thousand years ago. Come over to the left and then go down a little bit. What you're going to see is that there's uh, that that would be what's called the medieval warm period. You can see that the that the uh, spikes are kind of on the right side of the green line, and then you see that they shift and and they're almost predominantly below. I mean, on the left of the green line, oh, yeah, yeah. that was the first phase of the Little Ice Age. Then it got a little bit warm. There was a warm warming in the middle of the Little Ice Age, and then it it kind of got cool again. And then right up at the end, you can see the 20th century warming. I think what I'll do is since we, you brought up the, the question of the Little Ice Age, uh, I am going to go to some interesting stuff here. Uh, let's see. Let's see, that's the problem when they only talk about 180 years. I mean, all you have to yeah. do is go back a few hundred and you're noticing huge shifts. So Huge shifts, yeah, exactly. You know, there's there's a lot of paintings and, and and etchings and wood carvings and stuff that were done during the Little Ice Age that show 
you know, the Thames River being frozen. They were having ice fairs on the Thames River uh, that they can't have now because of, because of the, the, the cold of the Little Ice Age. Um, showing here the frozen canals of, of uh, Holland. Mm. I'm going to go to the next slide, and what you're going to see is the Mir de Glace, or Glace in, uh, in the Alps. And notice this is, this. you'll see down here on the right where my uh, mouse is hovering, there's, a, there's a, a, a cab and a building. There's some people looking, and you'll see that the ice is filling this valley, almost reaching up to, to where this cabin or little house had been built. Okay, so now we'll go to the next one. And here's two images, one that was taken in the 1960s, and then the, the painting that goes back to the early 1800s, late 1700s. And what you're going to see is how much the uh, ice had actually receded. You can, if you look at the arrows on the left image, they correspond with the arrows on the right image. And you mm. can see, look at the upper arrow, and you can actually see a, a change in the coloration of the rock. Yeah. Right where my mouse is. Okay, well, that was the depth of the ice during the Little Ice Age. So it completely filled this valley. That's hundreds of feet deep right there. Um and then it's been receding since, oh, from between like 1820 and 1850, the glaciers worldwide began receding uh, after the, the, the depth of cold during the Little Ice Age. Go to the next one here. Let's see what we've got. Okay, here's uh, Svalbard, Little Ice Age moraines. Now, here you see this uh, aerial shot, I think, was taken in the 70s. Now, notice here, this is the, the moraine, which is the, the material, the terminal moraine that was uh, oh, deposited wow. in front of the ice at its little ice age maximum. <sighs> and you can see very clearly here how much the ice has receded from where it was um, like during the 17 and early 1800s. It's pretty well confirmed that during the little ice age, this was probably some of the coldest centuries of the last 10,000 years. The glaciers worldwide grew to some of the greatest extent that they've been since the end of the little ice age. So again, putting this in perspective, it's important to realize that when we're talking about global warming, our baseline is some of the coldest centuries of the last 10,000 years and some of the largest uh, ice growth and ice accumulation of the last 10,000 years. And Here people were this. not doing well at that time too, right? Wasn't there like famines and... Oh yeah, there was... Um, well, yeah, whenever we see, like when the first phase of the Little Ice Age came on, it was between, oh, 1320 and 1340. And what you had was a, a series of agricultural collapses, um, which brought on famine, which weakened people, weakened their immune systems. And then in 1342, you had the onset of the Justinian plague. Yeah. Um, as a result of the cold, I, I think you can make a direct line between the the cooling the, 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 the cold damp that came on, the succession of agricultural collapses, the food shortages that then ensued, the famine that followed that, the weakness that was brought on by people not getting enough nutrition, and then with the weakened uh, people, you now had opportunistic diseases like uh, the bubonic plague that was able to basically take over and wipe out a third the population of Europe. And it took a good century and a half or two centuries, basically, to recover from that. And the Little Ice Age was uh, broken in the middle by a period of, of a return to warmth. And then the second phase came on again. Luckily, we had progressed enough during that warm interval that 
we weren't as dramatically affected. But, you know, the potato famine in Ireland that killed so many people and, and triggered a, a massive uh, emigration out of Ireland was clearly a consequence of the, of the cooling of the Little Ice Age. If we go to the next slide here, you can see the village here, and you can see how massive this the Mirde Glacier is coming out of the, the mountain valleys there, um, swallowing up the trees, you see. And, and this was uh, would have been around, I think, the early 1800s when this was maybe late 1700s. Um, here's the Grindelwald Glacier, about 1775 to 1780, you can see coming down here out of the mountains, about to overrun this church. It is in the process of overrunning a village. And then in the next slide, which is 1966, it's the same valley. I'm, I'm uh, toggling back and forth. But here what you see is that the glacier has receded all the way up where it extended hmm. down before. Oops. Um, that's now forest growing in there, right in here, see? So all of that... that recession of glaciers took place between, um, like I said, between about 1780 and 1966. So pe what people need to understand is that the glacier recession isn't something that just started since we were driving SUVs. It's been ongoing <laughs> for 200 years. Yeah. And it's just continued doing over the last 30 years what it had been doing over the previous 150 years, okay? It may have accelerated a bit, um, which could be basically just the fact that there is a lag between warming and cooling and, you know, air temperatures are going to change, but the, the effects on the ground are not going to be instantaneous. If we go to the next slide, we'll see uh, the Argentiere Glacier as it appeared in 1780. You'll see that it's coming out of the mountain valley, about to encroach upon this little village here. And then in the next slide, which is a photograph taken in 1966, you'll see that the glacier is completely receded off to the left, where it was, where you see it right here on the right, on the left here, it's gone, and it's all you see is a is a, uh, a line a, there, a, a line of 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 moraine right there, which has not been reclaimed by forest yet. Now, isn't there um, somewhere else on the globe that's getting <clears throat> more glaciers, like the Arctic or something? Isn't that growing? I mean, isn't that sort of a well, counter-argument as well? ice mass is growing, yes. That that seems to be pretty well settled at this point, according to the ice, uh, I mean, according to the uh, satellite surveys of the ice mass. Go to the next slide. You'll see there it is, uh, uh, about 1850. Now, it's, it's just after this, and you know, between 1850 and 1900 that we begin our first instrumental documentation of, of climate change. If we toggle back and forth between these two, you see here's a, 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 a sketch that somebody did showing the, the massive glacier during the Little Ice Age coming down again, about to overrun this village. And we see it in 1966, it's receded way back up here into the, into the mountain valley. Forests are now growing where you saw the ice mass mm. before. Go to the southern hemisphere, we got New Zealand. Here's the Franz Josef Glacier in the southern Alps of New Zealand, 1872. Right down here, I've got the, the mouse. You'll see this, uh, there's a large boulder there, with most likely an erratic boulder or a possibly a something that has been exposed and denuded by the ice coming over. Okay, now look at the transition that we go through here as we come into the 20th century. 
I got a a a, a, a line there, so you can kind of see thirty-three thousand two hundred feet across. Here it is, about nineteen oh five. Notice that same rock right here mm. is now exposed. The glacier is receding. Now this is again before there's any fo significant fossil fuel um, contribution to the atmosphere by humans. And we go to the photograph of 1940, and you can see that the ice has receded immensely. And where in the first uh, image, what you see here, there's now a lake in front of it. Um, so this has been going on all over the world uh, for the last 200 years. Glaciers have been in recession. Um, <clears throat> and here's showing the recession. You can basically see uh, if you go all the way up here to the top, 1865, this is this was the height of the, of the glacier depth. And then you can see by ages, here's 1907, 1930, 1950, it's here. 1965, it's all the way back up here. Um, and really between 1940 and 1950 is when humans began burning significant amounts of fossil fuel. And nobody claims that prior to World War II that, that the amount of anthropogenic CO2 in the atmosphere was enough to cause major climate change because um, it was negligible. Right. So, you know, the point of this is that, um, you know, this stuff, you know, the question you got to ask is, you know, what portion of this is natural and what portion of it is anthropogenic? <clears throat> and here you see that the blue line shows the glacier shortening, the 180-year trend, which went up to the early part of the 21st century. And you see that blue line basically is a record of the glacial shortening. Um, then you have the, 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 the angled black line, which is simply the trend line. And what you see is that the trend line has held quite steady since, you know, around 1820. So when we get to that, that vertical dash line represents, okay, it's, that now is the point at which humans are uh, increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere to the extent that it could possibly um, affect the temperature. But what you see is that the glacier recession is continuing doing basically what it had been doing for the previous century. So, Except for what the I'm end there? What was, on the, what was on the end there? <clears throat> which end? Up the, here? Yeah, yeah. You know, it almost seems like it's well, the because opposite. right here is right here. This this represents that cooling period that I was talking about. Um, that shifted again in the end because during that cooling period it, between 1945 uh, roughly and 1970, glaciers actually started growing again. It almost looks like it's the opposite in that access to these things like coal, oil, and gas are dependent on the temperature rising. Like it looks like that spike is following the warming instead of vice versa. Mm-hmm. It does. We'll go to the next graph. This is um, from a climate variation, a simple geological perspective that was published in 2007 in Geology Today. And if we look at this graph, which goes back to the late Cretaceous to about 70 million years ago, and here's departure from present day temperature. And as we go back to the late Cretaceous, what you're gonna see is plus 10 degrees centigrade. So the, the global average climate based upon proxy um, measurements was up to 10 degrees warmer than now. That dashed line represents um, right now, right? Okay, so now notice that, that it 
falls. You see the beginning of the Cenozoic era. It rises again, then it falls, and it rises. Start of Ice Age conditions during the Eocene. Then it makes this long, steady decline. You see glaciers begin to develop in Antarctica. It comes down to the early Miocene, and then there's a spike of warmth again during the, during the uh, mid to late Miocene. And then it begins to drop precipitously off. And then it begins to decline right down to what they're showing is about 1.6 million years ago. And then, boom, it drops down into this period called the Pleistocene, which is this right here, and the Quaternary Ice Ages. So, you know, when you say, um, what's the normal temperature for the Earth? Well, then you got to then say, well, what time scale are you talking about? Because when you look at this going back 70 million years, then clearly the glacial cold that we've been in for the last million and a half years is the unusual temperature compared to all the rest of the time. That's basically since so, the dinosaurs, right? Really? The dinosaurs ended right here at this line where it says <laughs> beginning of the Cenozoic era. Right. So that's, that, that's, the, that's the end of the dinosaurs right there. It almost looks like it's a, like a uniform pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the step ups de- definitely seem, uh, yeah, seem correlated well. So I wonder what it was like, you know, for the last couple hundred million before the dinosaurs. Like, do you think it's always been that warmer? No, there have been there have been ice ages. In fact, during the Ordovician, there was a global ice age, probably colder than than, than this one, and uh, carbon dioxide was up to three and four thousand parts per million. Wow. Which right there suggests, well, wait a second. If carbon dioxide is the sole driver of climate, then how do you explain that? Yeah. How do you explain that we were in an ice age in the Ordovician? This is an interesting graph because here you can kind of see there is a regular sort of oscillation. Oh, this yeah. is from <clears throat> way back in 1973 from Cesar Emiliani, quaternary paleo temperatures and the duration of high temperature intervals. And it basically charts going back to 400,000 years ago down to the present. And you can see that for the last 400,000 years, the planet has been uh, going into these full, these troughs represent full glacial cold and the peaks represent interglacial warmth. And right over here on the left is is kind of where we're at now. Um, this would have been the, uh, what's called the climatic optimum right here. I mean, this would have been the, the medieval warm period right here. Here was the last phase of the great um, ice age. So... Yeah, what you see here is that it looks like there is kind of a quasi-periodicity to these changes. So how often are those those spikes? It appears to be roughly about every 25 to 30,000 years. Like right on a great... A uh, great year, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. So, and Bill Nye doesn't know any of this. <laughs> you need to step your game up, son. I don't even Bill think Nye he knows... Bill Nye doesn't even know what precession is. He doesn't even know half the words Randall's using. Probably, he doesn't know any of these things. He he, it's it's so frustrating to hear to see this guy who's got he's given a mic and yeah. a loud voice and a big huge audience. Yeah, just to tell them things to lie to them because he doesn't know anything. Yeah, he but does. don't forget I mean, Randall's audience on Rogan is bigger than anything Bill Nye's pulling on cable TV. Yes, yes, uh, I, I know, but it, they're not the ones we have to worry about. It, we, we need to get the people who are all in, who th- this is kind of the information you try to present to somebody and they don't even want to look at it. 
Right. They don't want because to they've already they've already they've already got their they're already brainwashed to believe that that it's a lie. Like we're trying to lie to them. We're, uh, Randall, you know, this information, if anyone tells you anything different, the conversation's over. Mm-hmm. I think it's crumbling down a little bit now. I think if things are shifting in a, in a, def, a bunch of different areas and and man-made global warming being one of them. I really think the gig is up. It's it's the start. Of, I think it's the start of the end for, for them. Yeah, Randall you know, needs a Netflix miniseries, just like uh, Magical Egypt. We need to get Randall on a big, you know, uh, uh, um, something with CGI, with visuals, something to get it out there to, to kind of battle against all this, this misinformation. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, again, I'm going to, I'm going to reiterate humans are definitely influencing the climate. There's no question. And, and we have influenced the climate by releasing, you know, another hundred to 20 parts per million of carbon dioxide. If you read my article, um, the redemption of the beast, I make the case that, it's really not such a bad thing uh, that we have increased the amount of carbon dioxide a little bit in the atmosphere. In fact, you know, uh, it may be possible we've perhaps uh, ameliorated the climate enough that we'll avoid another little ice age, which to me would be a great thing because if we had another little ice age and we had two or three years of major agricultural collapses, we'd be in a deep, we'd be in deep trouble. Um, I mean. Even just a cooling of of a couple of degrees centigrade, similar to what was occurring during the Little Ice Age, could really bring on some serious trauma. Um, you know, I mean, because even even in America, I mean, our food supplies would run out in six months. And if we had two years of major agricultural collapses in a row, we're in deep shit, people. You know. Um, well, Randall, what do you and, think? And, and the thing th- about CO two is. It is plant food, and plants love CO two. And if you doubt love that, it. then I mean, I've got reference after reference after reference in this in this essay I've, I've put online that people can read to get what you know what is being said by a lot of bona fide scientists going back from a hundred years down to the present time that is not getting publicized because it's getting lost in the clamor that humans are now the sole driver of climate change and that everything we're doing is bad and therefore we have to have a whole new level of of um, regulatory regime in place to control our behavior because if we're allowed to be free, we're going to destroy the planet. Yeah. yeah. As go if, look at Agenda 21. The people that are now going to be in charge are somehow so much more moral and enlightened than the rest of us that if we just do what they say, everything's going to be fine. Have you ever taken into account the intentional weather modification that's happening? Like we talk about climate change and, and, uh, and weather modification here quite a bit because... I mean, they're doing it in China. They've done it in Russia. Millions and millions of acres of cloud seeding and all this stuff. That um, I mean, I'm, I'm not even talking about chemtrails. I'm talking about geoengineering or weather modification. There's 50, right. 50 programs in the states. Like eventually, that's got to start affecting things. Graham is an all-in believer oh, in chemtrails. Come on, Darren. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> So have you, have you ever thought about how, the impact of that? Because oh, yeah, they, know, don't, they don't th- take that into account at all, right? I mean, there's there's a company out there that's been doing this for decades, weather, weathermodification.inc, and you can you can buy them to f- create fucking clouds or rain or sun or whatever. You know, I, I just don't know. My initial thought would be that that's 
possibly a local or regional effect. I don't know if it's having a, a, a global effect. Yeah. Um, well, here's an easy honestly, one. Look what happened after, right after 9-11. Right What's after 9-11. Right. When they when they put a freeze on flights yeah. and they weren't allowing planes to fly in the atmosphere. Well, go look what happened. It got hotter for a couple of days. Or did it? Hmm. Only because there was no flights. Interesting. I'll have to look at that. So Rogan even brought it up on his podcast a couple of times uh-huh. uh, that the science showed that just the fact that there was a hold on flights after 9-11 for three days, there were, the temperatures went up. Okay. Well, and that's interesting because then that, I mean, it implies that what the carbon dioxide emissions would have diminished from all the flights, right? Oh, the, I think it would be the, the contrails. Yeah. The contrails uh, uh, blocking the sun from hitting the earth. You know what I mean? Like the fake little temporary clouds. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the fact that that wasn't happening and we weren't, the skies weren't getting dulled. The sun was able to beat on the uh, beat on us, you know. So the the temperatures change. The like, so if they if that can happen just by the fact of them not flying for a couple of days, they they also do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, China was doing it for the Olympics. Uh-huh. Trying well, to clean you know, the I, air. I haven't I haven't looked into that to the extent you know. I, I focused primarily on natural climate change. And looking at, um, you know, basically the the um, research and evidence of the IPCC and the scenarios that they have been putting out, they don't really talk about geoengineering in that. So, um, but yeah, that's probably something I need to add to the uh, the list of things that I'm trying to learn about. <laughs> but uh, you know, still, I think in the big picture, it's probably of minimal influence relative to the big picture. I've got an interesting quote up on the screen right here now, um, which is one of the, the godfathers of modern climate scientists, Herman Flohn. I remember reading this back when it first came out back in 1979. And this was when that really, you know, these are the kind of things that really got, got my hair standing on end. <laughs> but uh, he was talking about this, you know, in the uh, wake of of looking at these new radiocarbon dates and realizing the pace of change. This is what Herman Flohn said. He said, from the viewpoint of the climatologist, the most important result of these investigations is the fact that within the human timescale of about 100 years or less, our climate is much more variable than hitherto assumed. Especially important and indeed disquieting is the evidence of abrupt coolings within warm interglacial periods, apparently as rare events with a recurrence interval of 10 to the fourth years. In other words, 10,000 years. So he's talking about, you know, um, these massive climate changes that have occurred in less than 100 years. And of course, what we know now is that they happen in considerably less than 100 years. He went on to say, that the problem of abrupt, intense coolings during an interglacial climate similar to the present climate resembles, to some extent, the Damocles sword hanging high above the globe and its inhabitants. Because of its possible consequences for the human race, its study deserves a much higher priority. Now, this was in 1979. So when in the early 90s when I heard that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change had been convened and 
we were going to undertake, you know, this massive uh, study into climate change. I thought, good, yeah, I mean, we need to know that. I mean, I had been thinking that for more than a decade since I had read this stuff in 1979. Well, within a year, a couple of years, it became apparent to me, and then particularly even when I read the charter of the IPCC, that its mandate was to focus exclusively on anthropogenic climate change uh, and, and to the exclusion of natural climate change. And so that's when I began to think, well, wait a second here. Now, I've been thinking and advocating, yeah, we need to understand exactly what Herman Flohn is talking about here, the, the problem of ab abrupt, intense coolings. And, of course, I would add to this warmings, natural warmings, natural cooling, such as we've seen in the paleoclimate record. But then natural climate change was just taken off the radar screen. And now you actually have people out there saying, yeah, humans are the sole cause of climate change. Um, so what are you saying then? That all of these other factors that may have played a role are, are suddenly inoperative? I mean, is that what you're saying? That, that you know, you've taken the sun out of the equation, you've taken the geomagnetic field out of the equation, you've taken the Milankovitch uh, cycles out of the equation, you've taken uh, cosmic dust out of the equation, you've taken volcanism out of the equation, or at least you've said these things are so minimal that we don't need to think about them. And the only thing really driving climate change now is the anthropogenic influence. And I say, no, we can't assume that these natural forcings that we've seen reflected in all of these proxy reconstructions of paleoclimate have now some reason mysteriously ceased to operate. <laughs> I think that could be a folly of biblical proportions. So, weren't they saying? Uh, didn't they used to have an argument that the carbon dioxide is was a different type? It was a polluted type or a, or a modified type of CO two. I haven't heard that in, in quite a few years, but I feel like a decade ago or so they were they were plugging that argument. Yeah, well, that, that's because the isotopic uh, signature of carbon dioxide released through fossil fuel burning is different than the uh, signature of natural carbon dioxide that's uh, taken up and extruded during the photosynthetic cycle. However, the heat capturing capabilities of oxygen, uh, I mean, of carbon dioxide 12, 13, and 14 are basically the same. Right. So, it, it I, you know, I and, really don't know if it means that much. Yeah. Huh. So then we get to uh, come, come jump up here to, to, to 1990. Uh, and what we see from studies of deep sea cores, the deep sea record shows evidence of abrupt climate change centered on the last deglaciation and resulting in a severe cold spell known as the Younger Dryas period. The origin of this climate catastrophe is not known. And it still isn't. Um, and then a year later, we have... Uh, this report that appeared in Science News, ice records drilled previously indicate the climate can sometimes fluctuate with surprising speed. In particular, studies of the GISP-2 Greenland Ice Sheet Project 1 core drilled from 1979 to 1981 in southeastern Greenland suggest that the North Atlantic region warmed by a striking 7 degrees cent centigrade in a half a century. That drastic warming far outpaces what the world is currently experiencing. And then James White, who was one of the lead scientists on the, on the um, 
study said that really surprised us that things could happen so quickly. And yet I hear over and over and over again, in fact, Bill Nye, this is one of his constant refrains is that, oh, well, the climate has never changed as fast as it's changing now. Oh, so either the guy is completely dishonest or he's completely ignorant of this kind of research. Probably a little of I both. I don't know which it is. It's probably a little of both. <laughs> probably a little of both. And then two years later, after they had, had learned even more from uh, really detailed studies of ice cores, we find Richard Fairbanks of Labonte Doherty Earth Observatory writing in, in the, the prestigious journal Nature from measurements of annual ice layer thickness over the past 15,000 years, the authors find that Greenland's climate emerging from the last ice age twice shifted from glacial to interglacial conditions over an astonishingly quick three to five years. Wow. And we're talking here about 10 to 12 degrees centigrade, which is going to be 15, 18 degrees <laughs> Fahrenheit, three to five years. I'm sorry, Bill Nye. You're, you don't know what you're talking about when you say it's never gotten, it's never happened this fast before. And he's not the only one that says that. You hear that over and over and over. Uh, and the main thesis for it, the cause of these ice age is what? Right. And say, say that again. The main cause of what's putting us into these ice ages, right? Well, that's the mystery. Mm -hmm. See, that's the mystery. That's the thing, you know, we need to find out. And, and, and if all of the money is going towards exclusively anthropogenic ch climate change, we're not going to know. We're not going to know what the answer to that question is. But most likely, we're getting pelted. And we were getting pelted a lot more frequently, according to your graph. We were getting hit with stuff all the time. Well, see, that's that's the interesting, which brings up the next question, is, is if I'm going to uh, put out a theory as to what's driving the climate, in that, uh, to that extent, I would say we probably are going to end up having to go outside uh, to outside sources, exogenic sources, and realize that planet Earth is part of a much larger ecosystem that encompasses the entire solar system and beyond. And when I say the entire solar system, I'm including the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud uh, in that. I'm including, you know, solar variations. And here, here's another interesting point. <clears throat> the, the sun has been excluded from the, the, the models of, of global warming. They're <laughs> saying, well, solar variability is too <laughs> minuscule, so we can discount that, right? And so it's going to be solely carbon dioxide, right? So carbon dioxide's increased, what, 100 parts per million in the last century, let's say, just in round numbers, right? So if you have carbon dioxide increasing by 100 parts per million, and you realize that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere follows a declining logarithm or declining exponential curve, which means that every increase, incremental increase in carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere only produces half as much as the previous incremental increase. What you basically are looking at is a curve that's declining towards zero with each, say, 50 to 100 parts per million increase. Most of the heat trapping capabilities of carbon dioxide, the, the, that capture of, of that 14, 15, 16 micron wavelength of, of infrared heat coming off of the Earth, most of that is already being captured by the first 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide, right? Certainly by the par 200 parts per million. We could keep increasing the amount of carbon dioxide, but the amount of heat capturing is going to continue to just diminish with each incremental increase because it's just like 
you could picture a sponge. You put a, a dry sponge on the table and you start adding water to it. It'll keep soaking up that water until it becomes saturated. And then what'll happen is that the water will start blowing out of the sponge as fast as you put it in, right? Well, right now the atmosphere is near saturation in that most of the infrared heat in that particular wavelength emanating from the planetary surface is now being captured. Most of the heat that carbon dioxide can capture is now being captured. That's the thing. Um, and that's a, a, another one of the issues that they don't talk about. So you could almost argue that you need that CO2 holding that atmosphere, otherwise we degrade back into the ice age. Yeah, and this, again, go back, read read the redemption of the beast, because I, I cover what's going on in there. And, and the studies that have come out in the last decade or two showing uh, that there are places around the planet, like major places around the planet that are greening for the first time in living memory. And this was first realized, you know, 20 years ago. And the the discussion or the debate was what's causing this greening. And, and what you see now is if you follow the trend of the research, um, it's pretty much now concluded that it's predominantly uh, the result of carbon dioxide fertilization. The planets, the plants are sucking up the extra carbon dioxide almost as fast as we put it into the atmosphere. And I've got showing studies in there where, you know, if we increase just you know, a, a modest increase in the amount of forest coverage over the surface of the earth. And the the biosphere is gonna be sucking up that carbon dioxide as fast as we put it in. Now, again, I'm not saying here we need just completely, un, you know, proliferated, you know, carbon dioxide uh, consumption because I am very much an advocate of moving beyond uh, a fossil fuel economy at some point. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all a matter of putting it into perspective. You know, we're going to uh, have to use it until we can get there, though. See, see, that's the thing. That's exactly right. Because what we have is we have an energy source now that's available, and, and in that we we need an energy source in order to make the transition. See, and again, I I, I discuss that in this in this essay. That um, I, I do hope people go on and read it. Um, oh yeah, for sure. Well, I would like to tell people that they really, if the if. <laughs> Uh, there's a video you did a long, a while back for Geocosmic Rex video, yeah. where you go over that old um, uh, alchemical drawing. Mm, I'm not remembering which one that the, would be. Um, the one with the with the uh, two-headed knight standing on top of the plant on top of the oh, dragon. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. That was a mind-blowing lecture. Good. That, I mean, that picture is, it, uh, that's something I keep on my phone just to show people and talk about it. And I, you know, I would like to learn where I can get more information because every time I look at that and I find a piece of, a, you know, and typically it comes from uh, things I've heard you say, and I go look at that picture and I'm just like, whoa, there's so much there that is just, like you said, like, we 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 live on one badass planet. This planet mm. is amazing, and we need to be as responsible as we possibly can. But one of those things is we need to, in order to protect it, so we can survive here. Maybe we should figure out how to defend it right. from outside forces. Yeah, because even well, those you know, long cycles that were you're talking about twenty six thousand years, you were saying it could be, you know, uh, more. Um, 
what did you what did you say is more of the solar system or not even even including the Oort cloud and the and the Kuiper belt well the, you know we could be going through a part of the galaxy every 26,000 years that's bombarding us and causing all this damage as well and that could be some of the reason why you know they knew back in Gobekli Tepe time or whatever they they knew that it was coming around again yeah i think that, that the idea is is completely plausible that there is a periodicity to um, exogenically driven planetary change. Um, and this is a whole other topic of discussion. I think it's one of the most important discussions we can have at this point. Um, because, you know, like almost on a monthly basis now, we're seeing stuff fly by the earth where we're getting to realize, you know, unlike a generation or two ago when we imagined we were just in this pristine um, emptiness of space, we realize now that there are, hey, you know what? There's a lot of stuff out there flying by the earth. And, um, you know, the question is, is are we just seeing it more often <laughs> or is it actually increasing? Yeah. You know, and the, the models that I'm looking at the, the, and the research I've been doing suggests that the uh, exogenic factor is being uh, seriously downplayed. Uh, whether it's intentional or or not, I don't know, but it just seems like it's it's being de-emphasized uh, because it could be a whole lot more significant player. I mean, you know, going back to that famous 1908 Tunguska event, um, which to me was definitely a cosmic learning experience, and and we're still uh, deciphering the mysteries of that 1908 event, which was probably a member of the Taurid meteor shower which interestingly uh, has come up uh, as, a, as a prime candidate for the possible impacts at the end of the last ice age and has been found its way into a lot of mythology, um, you know, during going back centuries. And I will be developing uh, additional essays and probably even the book I'm writing is gonna get into some of that, um, showing the, 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 the myths of the celestial bull and the slaying of the bull. Um, particularly in, oh, like uh, some of the uh, religions like Mithraism, which was a, one of the main competitors of early Christianity in the Roman Empire. And they have a whole scenario called the Tauroctony, which is based around the idea of the slaying of the bull. And of course, the slaying of the bull is Taurus, the bull. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the Taurid meteor shower is so-called because it's radiant, the point that it appears to be emanating from space is centered right on the shoulder of the bull. And in the Mithraic traditions, what you see is, is Mithras slaying the bull by uh, driving a sword into his shoulder, which in the classical depictions of Taurus is exactly the radiant point of the Taurid meteor shower. <laughs> and in, the and blood... in that quote earlier, you were talking about the sword in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was that? What was the name? Yeah. <clears throat> the Sword of Damocles. It's from a Greek myth. You can look it up. Yeah, it's just it's just fascinating why we should have treated that that last one that happened in Russia. We should that should have been a fire drill or like an yeah. earthquake drill. Yeah. You know? Remember you used to have to hide under your desk for uh yep. because the Russians are coming? Yeah. That we the planet should be planning for this stuff. Yeah, and I think I think it's going to take a couple of more events. It may take 
you know, if that Tunguska, uh, if we had a repeat of that now and uh, an event like that happened over uh, a densely populated part of the globe. Don't say Seattle. That, uh, that event, you know, you're talking about 150 foot wide, roughly piece of space debris flying into the Earth's atmosphere, exploding five miles up with the force of about a 12 to 15 megaton hydrogen bomb explosion. <laughs> and that is enough to basically pretty much level any major metropolitan area on the, in, the, in the world. Um, luckily, at the time, it was over a, a sparsely populated area of Siberia, right up there at the northern limit of the old-growth Taiga forest. And uh, it exploded and devastated, decimated, if you will, uh, over 800, about 800, I think, 50 square miles of, of old-growth forest was just leveled. And if you look at any major metropolitan area, like in the U.S., like, say, Washington, D.C. or Atlanta, you look at a map of Washington, D.C., and you look at the perimeter highway, or you look at, like, Atlanta or New York, and you look, you know, many of the big cities have perimeter highways around them. Uh, the area I've calculated is the area inside of 285, which is the perimeter freeway around Atlanta, is almost exactly the same size as the amount of devastation caused by the Tunguska blast of 1908. So, you know, if you had a, a just a small little speck of space debris like that come into the atmosphere and blow up over the eastern seaboard or over Europe or something, you'd potentially have millions of casualties. Is that also going to... what, guy? That would be a wake-up call for the human species. Yeah, and is that also going to come with an electromagnetic pulse at all as well? Now that we're all in the digital age and everything is electrical, like when back when Tunguska happened, we wouldn't have known the electric effect of that. Yeah, I mean, it could certainly have EMP effects. So, so even though it might destroy Atlanta, it could it could destroy the whole you know North America with a pulse. Yeah, Yeah. the telegraphers, the people running the telegraph machines. Didn't somebody, uh, didn't people get electrocuted? During Tunguska or the, or the Carrington event? That was the uh, Carrington. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know about that. That was strictly the solar, the solar flare, I think, or the solar maximum or whatever. Oh, is that, there. Yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Which, which, which brings me back to a point I was about to make, and it won't take me a second, which is that, you know, the sun is discounted. And then, you know, basically, carbon dioxide is considered the sole driver of climate change. Um, but even those promoting that in the scientific community will admit that by itself, and in all of the computer models, the over well over a dozen, I think, 15, 16, 17 computer models, basically what they do is they put in a whole bunch of uh, positive feedback parameters. So you've got... Uh, Essentially, the initial warming of the CO2 is not, admittedly, not going to drive this catastrophic climate change. So you have to have positive feedbacks, which, which uh, take the form of water in uh, additional water vapor in the atmosphere. And water vapor is actually the most effective greenhouse gas. So, in other words, this, the slight warming uh, caused by the carbon dioxide increase then causes more water vapor into the atmosphere which captures more heat, and then that triggers this runaway warming. And so it's basically these hypotheticals um, uh, feedback processes. But, of course, the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of atmospheric physicists and meteorologists and stuff have said, well, you know, more water vapor in the atmosphere 
means more clouds and more clouds has a net cooling effect. So, you know, maybe your, your, you know, your, your series of, of positive feedbacks is, is irrelevant, but I find it interesting that they're totally willing to uh, theorize that there is a series of feedbacks that amplifies the initial effect of carbon dioxide, but then they completely discount the possibility that there might be positive feedbacks related to the amount of solar radiation coming into the earth. Um, but again, that just suggests to me that, you know, what you have here is a preordained outcome. And all of the science is, is basically oriented around this idea that humans are the cause of climate change and then all of the things that then follow from that, um, which whether it's a carbon tax or cap and trade or, you know, the control of, of energy resources by the governments, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of agendas tied in with it. And now you have this, 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 you know, whole industry, global warming industry that's on the receiving end of literally of hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, people talk about, oh, well, yeah, Exxon was contributing money. Well, you know, if you read the studies, you know, what you find out is that Exxon contributed a total of about $19 million over a period of 10 years. And oh, this was to over 30 groups, many of whom didn't even do climate change research. And if you extend this, you know, average it of to 30 some groups over 10 years, it works out to be about $65,000 per group on average, which would be enough to, to uh, basically fund what some mid-level employee for a year. But then, you know, what did what did Obama do just before he left office? He gave the second installment to the Green Climate Fund of 500 million, which, you know, was the second installment. So here was a billion dollars within the last year or two going towards this, you know, conclusion that that, you know, greenhouse warming is going to be catastrophic and it's caused by humans. And basically, we need to implement all of these controls on human behavior. I'm all for Listen, I'm totally for uh, alternate forms of energy, and I want that to happen. But it's not going to happen if the government continues to confiscate hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and put it towards a contrived uh, catastrophe. If it, it, uh, you know, I think that there will be free market solutions that will uh, bring us to where we need to be a whole lot faster. And what we need is is basically... All, to hear all sides without the demonization and all the, 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 the accusations and all of the ad hominem arguments. You know, we need to say, we're saying, well, you know, a lot of these guys that have raised issues about the so-called consensus are raising legitimate questions. And rather than marginalizing them and demonizing them and calling them names, we need basically an unbiased debate more than anything. What you find over and over ago then is that, uh, you know, the side that's promoting global warming doesn't want a debate. That's why they keep saying the debate's over. But the debate hasn't even begun yet. So how is it going to be over? So, yeah. Maybe the debate will start this yeah, year. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Mean, well, do you, do you have anybody that by... you would like to debate, Randalls? Anybody specifically that you think you'd, you know, I mean, not that they would, but if you could choose somebody. Well, I think say. it would be really a lot of fun debate to to debate Bill Nye. I have to confess. But yeah, it was not he would that, that might be too easy. I'll start tweeting him. Start <laughs> agging him on. Hey, why don't you see if you can get Bill on the, on your show? Yeah. Well, we had I'll somebody. Try. We had somebody on talking about the planet uh, planetary uh, missions and stuff. like that. Emily Lockdewalla. 
she works for the same organization as him. So we had her on and we didn't really talk about Bill at the time. So, so what did you talk? Uh, plan, all the planetary, uh, planetary expo, uh, explorations right now, all the different missions going out there. It was a pretty, it was a pretty cool scientific chat just about, you know, all the global missions all over the galaxy right now or not the galaxy, the solar system. Yeah. Now that's something I, I can completely get behind. Is, yeah. is, and you know, interestingly and ironic, I think that Bill Nye is also a big advocate of that. Yeah. Well, he so, is, yeah, that's his whole planetary.org or whatever that uh, organization is. He's the, he's the head dude there. So yeah, and and it's I would, kind of a contra, contradiction in a way. It is. It is. That's how I look at it. And, and, you know, I would say, Bill, I'm with you on this one, but on this issue, yeah, I'm totally behind the idea that we need to listen. If we could stop spending, you know, trillion and a half, two trillion dollars a year on war and still and, and spend it on the exploration and economic development of the solar system, wouldn't that be about a million times better? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And where's his experience to put him in a position like that? I don't know. You know, because uh, he because no, he, he does what he's told. That's why. <laughs> but, you know, all of these companies that are making the billions off of, you know, preparing for World War Three. Hey, wouldn't you guys rather make the same amount of money, but but by moving the human species, you know, into the solar system and, you know, putting us in a position where we're no longer vulnerable to these kinds of cosmically induced catastrophes? Wouldn't and didn't, for, and for every dollar that we put into the NASA program, didn't it produce like $7 into the market? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I heard it was for every dollar we invested into NASA, it produced seven dollars because of all the things that were invented and commercialized, like Velcro. Yeah, like Tang. <laughs> you know, it just it's it's sticky notes. It's almost like it's a it's it really does feel like it's our purpose to get out there and explore it, but somebody doesn't want us to do it. But it seems like, yeah, I, I, you know, I believe it's our destiny. In fact, I would even go so far as to say this. I think that basically what we're going to see is that when we look at the history of life on this planet, what we see is a pattern of constant interruptions. The old uniform, gradualistic, Darwinian model of natural selection, incremental change through natural selection playing out smoothly over millions of years, it's just not there anymore. Um, you know, in the older models, what you had was like at any given time, there's maybe 10% of existing species going extinct, being replaced by 10% of new species appearing to uh, and filling those vacated niches. But, you know, that model is obsolete. The model now is that, you know, life goes along just fine. And then all of a sudden it's interrupted and 75 or 90% of all the species on the planet suddenly disappear. And then you've got this, uh, this hiatus in there. And then Suddenly, these uh, vacated niches are filled during these events called rapid speciation events, which we still don't know what, what causes that, really. Mm -hmm. um, I have a suspicion that the same factors or forces that cause the mass extinctions are also introducing catalysts into the biosphere that can trigger accelerated evolution. But that's a like the Cambrian, Like the Cambrian explosion kind of thing? Perhaps like the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, we. I mean, one of the things that's interesting that's come out of Russia uh, post uh, end of the Cold War was all their studies on the Tunguska site and uh, accelerated mutations that have taken place uh, in plants and animals in the region of the Tunguska blast. 
And so that's a very, very, to me, interesting uh, area of research. Yeah, that, very. Yeah. The Russians have were, a lot of information that we don't yeah. have, I think. Yeah. And this is why we need to be talking to the Russians instead of demonizing them, you know? Or is that why they're being demonized? Maybe so. Well, I think they're partially being demonized because, you know, they want to they want to push this trillion dollar nuclear modernization. Um, and, it, you know, it's not going to go through unless we've got, you know, enemies to justify it. So, you know, basically what they're wanting to do is is implement a, a first strike or preemptive strike capability. And that's what all the new um, the new generation of nuclear technology is is designed to do. Uh, and I'm not sure if we need to go there. No. You know, I think we need to be sitting down with the Russians and saying, hey, look, look what happened to you back in February of 2014. That's going to happen again. And do we want to go toe to toe and become enemies again? Do we want to revive the Cold War? Or, hey, why don't we collaborate and cooperate on the exploration and and economic development of space? Wouldn't that be a whole lot better well, they're all in. We have to hitchhike yeah, with them now. They are. They are in. They are in. That's the, that's the irony here. They're in. But it's yeah. You know, if we want to go to space now, we have to ride a Russian rocket. Mm -hmm, yeah. And of course, you know everything. All the signals we get from Russia is that hey, yeah, we'd rather partner with you instead of, mm -hmm. you know. And so then you've got basically this demonization. Like okay, they're not perfect. Putin is not the perfect angelic being. So therefore, we will demonize him and demonize the Russians and everything to do their nefarious um, objectives or whatever will demonize all of these people uh, for purposes of basically establishing global hegemony. And, you know, is that really in America's best interest to try to become the, the policeman of the world? I don't think so, because it's going to be a never ending process whose final end can only be catastrophe that we've brought on ourselves or because we're so preoccupied with stuff down here and with each other and trivia, um, something cosmic sneaks up on us and kicks our ass. And this is why I'm so disappointed in the left because when I came of age back during the Vietnam war, the left was the primary advocate for free speech and free unfettered speech and anti-war. And now look at them, look what the left is, a, a, consumed with, you know, what bathroom we're going to use and microaggressions and cultural appropriation and white privilege and all of this stuff that really amounts to absolutely nothing except a big distraction from the real stuff. So, I mean, I think the left has lost all credibility and I'm just hoping that somebody on the progressive left finally says, wait a second, you know, our fundamental purpose and, and our best, um, the best that we were in the 20th century was when we took a stand against war, when we stood for free speech, regardless of what that speech was. Well, the problem is we weren't not out there trying to shut down people who disagreed with us. Yeah. And that's not an organic movement. That's the problem I have with it. It's, it's, it's intentional. Yeah. It's, it's, it's being pushed through, through certain agendas and it's all part of, you know, trying to globalize the whole, the whole system here. So that's what's frustrating yeah. for me. Yeah, and now they're live action role playing as ISIS characters. They, 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 it's like they shop at the same clothing store. Yeah, you know that all about. They're they're ISIS larpers. That's what they are. <laughs> That's good stuff. I never thought about yeah. it like that.
It does look similar. Yeah, go go look at the people have been doing the Photoshop of ISIS uh, people, you know, standing on top of their trucks or whatever with those with those leftist flags. Yeah. You know, hey, it's well, like, which one is this? <laughs> hey, Randall, while we have a little bit of a break here, kind of a lull, do you want to talk about, um, do you want to mention your stuff again here? Like what you guys are doing on your website and you've got a sale on some of your DVDs and your classes. Can you describe a bit yeah, of that man. for us? Yeah. Well, yeah, we've got this uh, uh, a sale on the on the the new uh, Blu-ray Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of I don't know four or five hours of stuff, and it's got you know charts and graphs and you know video clips and high resolution images. It's chock full of juicy stuff. It's amazing, and I'm actually uh, that's why I asked you since you have a Blu-ray now, I'm gonna get it because I loaned my copy out a couple times. And this last time, I didn't get it back. Ah. Uh, well, you get so 33% off. Get, Use coupon yeah, coupon. I'm going to go get my 33%. Yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, yeah, a, uh, for Grimera, you're going to get a special deal. Just because of my good friend and how you guys put us up when we were, you know, about to launch our, our last expedition up there. Hey, you no know, what, there was eight of us, and and Darren put all eight <laughs> of us up in his house. Yeah, that, was, that was an awesome podcast. That was a fun one. Wasn't that fun? That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it, it sure was. was. And oh, I yeah, would like just to do it. Chatting again. in his garage till late hours, and the, yeah, it was great. The real hero is my yeah. wife for not killing us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so here, I want to take this opportunity before millions and millions of people to say thank you to your wife. Oh. Yeah. What, what what you're listening? What four or five hundred million? Getting there, yeah, about a half a billion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what about your classes, Randall? You've also uh, got. Uh, I, I took one of those a uh, couple, a couple of oh, geez, it was probably Sacred a couple Geo. years ago now. Sacred Geometry. Yeah. yeah. But we're, and then we're going to be doing podcasts because Cameron is. You know, I'm here in the studio now. He set up a whole studio here, so we're going to be uh, taking some of these things that we've been talking about and a lot of other stuff. I've got tons and tons of material. And we're going to be putting together a series of podcasts. They're going to be short, little, easily digestible, like I said, 20 to 30 minute segments um, covering a variety of topics that we've been talking about here, but and in a lot of things we haven't been talking about. Um, and, you know, we're kind of coming up with a list. And if anybody out there has ideas, you know, if you hear something that you find particularly interesting, you want to know more about it. You know, just you can make a suggestion and say, hey, I want to hear more about uh, Mithraism or I want to hear more about the Holy Grail. or I want to Where hear do more I about send my list cloud or whatever? <laughs> I have uh, a long list, Randall. OK, there's so many things I've heard you talk about that I don't hear the interviewers like they kind of just brush over it. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. Go back. Go back. It's the one thing I don't like about podcasts because I love it. Uh, I listen to about 10 hours a day of podcasts uh -huh. and the one thing is i can't i'm not part of the conversation like right now this is such an honor to be talking to you and hanging out with you guys on here uh it's just like there's so many things i've heard you bring up that i'm like oh wait a second there's something more to what he just said you're not even getting into it there so i've been i was so stoked when i heard cameron talking about the gnosis podcast it's just i've been bugging him on twitter about it too 
He's like, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> I'm like, I want it now. Yeah, you know, but, it's, it's uh, you should tell go, people you know, why they to raise should... the funds to buy the equipment, and you know, I'm still barely out of the out of the red. You know, my business got hit really hard by the recession, so I went from being relatively prosperous to being relatively poor, and I'm just now kind of coming out of that. Um, and that's archetype. Yeah, that's archetype builders, and Cameron's going to be putting up some of that stuff on the website. Go check uh, it out, guys. It's actually, Randall, you're good. You're really good at it. I, I, I dabbled in construction when I was younger and yeah, the, it's, it's really good guys. Go check that out. But as far as like the, um, the sacred geometry, uh, have you told people like why they should get those classes? Like what? Cause it, I don't think that most people, they, they hear it like, maybe they don't know what it is or they don't know what it might do for them or what they, the experience they might get be getting out of studying something like sacred geometry. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, something I got interested in a long time ago in the early seventies when I discovered Buckminster Fuller's work. Um, you know, and I got commissioned, I was part of a group that, uh, we were doing a retreat in Northern Minnesota and, and me and my two younger brothers got recruited to be lead carpenters on building two geodesic domes, fuller domes. So in order to be able wow. to do that, I had to go and study geodesic geometry. And that's how I discovered Buckminster Fuller. And then that led me into the studies of geometry. And I discovered that, you know, geometry was one of the common, uh, themes of all of this ancient, particularly sacred architecture. The, the term sacred geometry, I, you know, a lot of, I've seen people online, you know, on some of the comment boards saying stuff like, well, Randall Carlson, he believes in sacred geometry. So that discounts anything else he might say, you know, and of course they have no idea what sacred geometry is. They probably don't know, you know, they probably wouldn't know, you know, the, the Pythagorean theorem if it came up and kicked him in the ass. But, you know, the thing is, is geometry has been around since the very dawn of, of, of recorded history. You know, the Egyptians were a uh, major utilization of, of geometry. Um, basically, all the ancient cultures, uh, the megalithic cultures of Europe were using geometry linked with astronomy. The term actually is that I've been able to trace in, in historical sense uh, was from the work of George Lesser, who was a early 20th century Freemason who studied the systems of geometry used in the building of the medieval ecclesiastical structures. So he was mainly looking at churches and cathedrals built during the Middle Ages and studying because they were very much utilizing geometry. I mean, when you look at the, the Ogival vault in a Gothic cathedral, it's pure geometry. Um, you look at the floor plans and how they developed them, it's, it's pure geometry, you know. He called it sacred geometry because it was primarily being used in the design and construction of sacred structures. That is, structures that were ecclesiastical in nature. But then, you know, it began to uh, expand from there. There was another um, Tons Bruins, who was a, a Danish, again, a Freemason, who came along uh, after Lesser and uh, published a two-volume set on ancient geometry and its uses. And he went back. Uh, not only to the uh, the guilds of medieval builders, but back to the you know to the classical Greece, um, the building of the Greek temples and the, the geometry that they employed, and showed that there was a consistency between what the Greeks were doing and what the 
you know, the, the, the medieval ecclesiastical builders were doing. And then, you know, you had John, people like John Michelle and Keith Critchlow, who expanded it beyond that, showed that, you know, at the height of the, the uh, Islamic empire, uh, you know, 9th, 10th, 11th century, when they were building these incredible mosques, they were using geometry uh, and basically the same geometric principles that were being used by the Greeks, by the cathedral builders. And then, you know, what um, both Critchlow and John Michel showed was that you could find the same geometry embedded in the megalithic structures of Europe. You had then uh, scholars coming along showing similar uh, geometries being used by uh, the Mayans in the erection of their uh, temples and cities in Central America. And then some of my own work and a few others have, have shown that that's entirely consistent with the monumental earthwork architecture in North America, the uh, Mississippian culture, the Hopewellian culture, the Chacoan culture were all utilizing geometry and using geometry to not only to lay out the patterns of the ground plans of these structures and their elevations, but also to link it into astronomical patterns and astronomical movements. So it's a very, and, and then uh, you've discovered uh, that there's been uh, scholarly research showing that, you know, a lot of the uh, artists, Renaissance artists, and, and um, really going back even again, even to Greece, there was a secret system that was passed down that was um, using geometry to set up grids uh, over which the paintings were laid. So that you, and and I've got a, a PowerPoint show I've put together, and we maybe could do a, a a podcast on this, showing how they set out some of these grids and some of the great masterpieces of of Renaissance art are are superimposed upon these grids. Now, there's nothing woo-woo about any of this, but these no. some of these mindless idiots that come on and make their comments who don't know anything, they're saying, oh, this is, oh, even, I think even on the, on the, one of the wiki sites, somebody says, oh, Randall Carlson, he's into that sacred geometry woo. Well, you know, I mean, that's what you, all you're doing there is you're just basically confessing your stupidity before the world, because <laughs> the study of geometry throughout history is a very complex, very sophisticated study, and and it was utilized. There's no question about it. These people used geometry, and their systems that they used was primarily uh, employed in the erection of structures that had a spiritual purpose, therefore the term sacred geometry, right? And there's nothing woo-woo about it. You know, that's just in the imagination of these know-nothings that like to get on and, and, and spout off, you know, thinking that somebody somewhere is going to be impressed because they can spout off and call somebody a name. But sacred geometry is really a powerful system. And then, and then, of course, it goes from there because it's not limited to uh, the... Uh, Physical structures, yeah. Right. It also, well, then it, you find it in nature, you know, and and it's embedded in all levels of nature from the... From the uh, atomic and molecular levels up through, you know, uh, vegetation and plants right up through uh, the solar system and the structures of the galaxies. We find geometry and it's a consistent geometry in the human anatomy, uh, you know, in the anatomy of living things. We find geometry, you know, the golden section is probably the most famous of the uh, of the uh, principles of sacred geometry. And, you know, it's it's completely embedded or embodied in human anatomy. Anybody can take their forearm from elbow to fingertip, 
divided in that special relationship, the golden ratio or the divine proportion, where you divide any length into uh, two asymmetrical units, where the small is to the large in exact proportion as the large is to the sum of the two. And that's the golden section. And it's been somehow utilized by life processes over and over and over again. And anybody who looks at their forearm from elbow to fingertip, and then if you feel anybody listening, try this, hold your forearm up in front of your face, feel around on your wrist, and you'll find this, this hollow space in your wrist called the space of desktop. And if you go from the fingertip of your, of your longest finger to that space, that's your short increment. Then from that space to your elbow is the long increment. And it stands in exact relationship uh, as the long increment does to your entire cubit or entire forearm. And then you all, you know hold up your index finger out in front of your face and look at the first digit from the tip of your finger to the first joint. And then look at the distance from the first joint to the second joint. And then from that joint to the knuckle. And that increase of expansion is following uh, the golden uh, the the, uh, the the golden uh, mean. proportion. And then it goes from there. I mean, you, you stand if you stand up against the wall, take your total height, divide your total height by your navel height, you'll find that that proportion is embodied there as well. So, I mean, this is all geometrically demonstrable. And for somebody to, to dismiss it because they think it's some something woo-woo is just, you know, it, it's just their ignorance. That's all. And, and anything that... And if you have somebody who doesn't follow the, the that ratio, it sticks out. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> You're like, well, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. Well, it's, it's off. Well, is that is that what's going on with Darren, do you think? What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> I think, Darren, when I get back up there, I think we need to do a detailed analysis of your proportions. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> sounds kinky. He's way taller than he sounds, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, when you're an infant that's born, your navel, basically, the navel of a newborn infant divides your total, the total body length basically in half. And then once you've reached adulthood, what you've essentially done, you know, obviously, if you had a human being walking around at, at full growth that had the proportions of an infant, they would look really strange, wouldn't they? Yeah. But... What happens is as you grow up, you're growing <laughs> into the proportions of the golden section. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, so and, we, and if you take so the average, if you add up. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, I think what you're going for, Cyrus, is that everybody deviates a little bit. But yeah. if you start averaging lots and lots of people, the more, the more data you have in your sample, the closer it's going to get to being right on the golden ratio, which is roughly 1.618033989 dot 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 non-repeating and the more people you get involved it's like we're all in this together people you know what i mean there's it's it's i don't know it's it's one of those things when i think about it if i go too deep into it it starts getting mind-bogglingly like it's just it's all for us you know that it's it's there for us and it it definitely feels like you know, uh, it's something that's being kind of hidden from us on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's part of us. It's part of the of some kind of plan out th- out there trying to keep the real information from us. And there's guys like you out there, and there isn't enough. There's not enough people like you out there, Randall, that are trying to get the good stuff out here. Because 
if you look at it, there's a systematic dumbing down of the education system. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. It just needs that whole, the whole thing needs to be blown up and restart. Because exactly. if you go look at uh, high, uh, junior high school text from over a hundred years ago, yeah. if you give that book to a college student, they, they're not going to be able to do it. Right. And they were doing that in junior high. Right. Yeah, Even I, look, I, go read love letters from world war one mm-hmm. that soldiers sent home and then go read some is like my dearest Clementine. I bestow upon you the greatest love. And yeah. you go read an one from the Iraq war is like, Yo, bitch, what's up? Yeah, I know. I know. Well, that's basically coming from a century of allowing government to run our education system. That's why I'm a strong advocate of the complete separation of government and education. Yeah, and go look at the people who started it, guys. Go look at uh, listeners out there. Go look at the people who started the education system and why. Yeah. The farther back you go, the Prussian education system... Mm -hmm. That you know, pre-German Prussian education system is what we have now. It's not for making smart people. It's for making a on that too. Yeah, we yeah, do. We'll throw that in the show notes. David, hey, I need to David take Rodriguez. a quick one-minute break. Well, we can. Could, you guys tell entertaining stories until I get back. Yeah, we could probably wrap it up. But anyway. just talk about you. And we can go on for another fifteen or twenty minutes. I just need okay. to take a break. Okay, yeah, I'll be right back. Okay. Tell us a story, Cyrus. Oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying myself, guys. Thank you so much for having me on and letting me listen. No, no problem. Like I was more than willing to turn my microphone off and just parti- participate in the, the, uh, the eargasm and the oral, uh, the visual aids yeah people go watch this video on youtube you got to well, see this well stuff, not right? only that we he has uh, the classes the right the four Pardon? or five uh he has the four or five classes going on uh four or five hours worth of sacred geometry classes too right yes so and there's uh, uh that's you can intense. find some stuff on his website you need to go to sacred geometry international the website and the Trust me when I say that there are there is so much information on there. And if you do the face bags, if you're on the face bags, go uh, sign up for Sacred Geometry on on Facebook. You're going to see some of some fantastic articles, fun things to read. And then uh, Cameron has some people on there that are amazing artists. You're going to see. You're going to see some some fascinating stuff, and if you studied sacred geometry, which I'm starting in, and I think I'm going to go buy that stuff tonight. uh, the rest of it, uh, you you'll if you don't understand sacred geometry, you're not getting that much out of it. It's not only is the art beautiful, but it's actually meaningful. But you don't you need to understand what what the artist is saying. Absolutely. Nice one, Cyrus. That was perfect. Yeah, yeah, good job. Are, no, you, are no. you back, Randall? Or no? Can't you see? Oh, well, well, I don't know. <laughs> the empty chair. <laughs> well, that's what that is. If more of you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Yeah. 
protection and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude and prayers for guidance and protection and put on okay. a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track, shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. Underneath breaths of deep gratitude oh. and prayers for guidance oh. and protection and put on a didgeridoo and shamanic drumming track. Shivers or vibrations and stuff like that. If Maria supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, man, I got to get an ISO of that. I don't remember. Have well. you guys ever watched the videos on the uh, uh, Geocosmic Rex YouTube channel that Randall has from shows. old lectures and stuff? Yeah, there's one actually there that uh, I think you can see me in the background of at the Big Rock. Jumping around oh, like yeah. an asshole. Yeah, that's right. And then there's a lot of lectures that he does uh, down there in Atlantis, Georgia. Atlanta. Atlantis. <laughs> well, that was on purpose. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's what it was named after, right? Is it? I'd have to say. From my word. understanding. But I'm, I might be wrong. <laughs> I'll take your word for it for now. Till I hear otherwise. Actually, I bet you Randall knows. Okay, just got back in time to hear. I bet Randall knows. <laughs> Oh, I called Atlanta Atlantis, and I did it on uh, purpose. I've, I've wondered about that over the years, and I'm not sure if I know why that, what that connection is. Darn. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry to disappoint There's you. There's too much out there to, for everyone to know everything, but you're, you're coming pretty close, Randall. You're, yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah, I estimated the other day, I think there's four things left that, that I don't know. Well, don't didn't you start? Uh, uh, you you made it a rule to read a scientific journal a day, right? Like a, a long time ago. Article. A yeah. minimum of one, yeah. A minimum. Sometimes two, sometimes three. Depends, you know, how complicated it is and how long it is. You know, three. Or and how long have you been doing that for? Pardon me. And how long have you been doing that for? Oh gosh, since you know the mid seventies, I guess. 40 years. Yeah. So I've 40 plus years. Yeah. I mean, in my archives, I've got thousands of articles and, you know, and I haven't read every one, but I could say I've read the abstracts of every single one. So I know what's in them. And, you know, if, if I need to, I can kind of go, I've got them all in binders, you know, chronologically ordered by subject. And, and of course now, you know, with the internet, there's so much you can do on there. And I have a, borrowing privileges, you know, at a major university. So I have access to that. And then there's, you know, Google Scholar and there's ResearchGate. And, uh, you know, if you go onto the websites of a lot of the uh, principals doing research in various areas, they will have links to their articles. So, yeah, I mean, it's incredible how much information is out there now. And it's just too bad that we're getting inundated with this trivia and bullshit, you know, that people get so consumed with that, is is of no consequence whatsoever to our future other than you know serving as a distraction from the things we really need to be paying attention to 
And what's the definition of gnosis? Can you can you tell well, the yeah, listeners that's the that? term? You know, it, it you know it basically means knowledge. And in the early days of Christianity, there was Gnostic Christianity, which uh, was basically suppressed with the rise of the authoritarian church. And and the difference was the authoritarian church, the Holy Roman Empire, Church of the Holy Roman Empire, basically said if you want to if you want to have a relationship with God, you can only do so through the uh, intermediary of the of the authoritarian church. And basically, they realized that they could use fear to, you know, subjugate people to submission. And whereas Gnostics, the the early first two century Gnostics were, their attitude was, well, no, you can have a direct relationship yeah. with God. You don't need the intermediation of the of the authoritarian. They church. wanted to put God in a box. Sure. Right? Yeah. So and, and remember, to... last time God was in a box, you couldn't come anywhere near him. Yeah. So and, that was the, the gnosis. The gnosis basically means knowledge um, and knowledge of both things seen and unseen. And, you know, so that's kind of where, you know, it's a very uh, it's a very uh, useful, broad term to kind of cover what we're, what we're trying to do with it. Do you have access to the Vatican's library? That's what I want. Yeah, to I was in there this morning. Yeah. Uh, shuffling around. Um, no, I don't. Were you Why the one you, who slipped that letter about uh, that that uh, took the um, that basically said that it, the Pope wrote a letter during the time of the Templars, basically saying that they never did commit blasphemy and all that stuff. Oh, it's like you guys have that in there, and you never like it was just your secretary found it on accident one day. What else do you got in there? Uh huh. I want to know what books did you steal out of uh, the Library of Alexandria? Yeah, you have any of those? Well, see, yeah, and, and you bring up a good point, Cyrus. It's it, it's the you know through the through the centuries and the millennium, the amount of information and knowledge that has been lost is almost inconceivable, um, both through deliberate suppression and both just the vagaries of time. You know the. The great Alexandrian Library of Egypt, you know, had what oh. four hundred thousand volumes of ancient works in there that was destroyed. The 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 uh, Library of Carthage, very similar. They can wanted every book in the world in there, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So I mean, they would you, they would they would step above your sh- uh, aboard your ship, looking for books. Yeah. And if you either gave it to them or you allowed them time to copy it. Yeah. Right. So. And then all of that's lost. Yeah, let's you burn know, it. Can you imagine what, what might have been in those volumes? And this <sighs> is why I say over and over again, no, look, we can't make any hard and fast conclusions about ancient history because there's so little. There's been so much that's been lost. And, you know, it's just so convenient and easy to, to, to come up with this sort of exponential curve of civilization, you know, from thousands and thousands of years of barbarism and pre-scientific illiteracy and, you know, basically hunter gatherers. And then somewhere, you know, within the last 500 years, post-Renaissance, we begin on this upward arc and now we're at the peak of civilization. And, you know, quit holding us back. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you're holding us back. You just let us rip, let us go. Sure. We got stuff to do. We got stuff to do. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think the real model, not only of, I was kind of getting to this point earlier, you know, is that now the model of, of, of life on this planet is one of, of, it's a sawtooth model, mm-hmm. you know, species proliferate, they, they 
they come to a peak and then suddenly it's interrupted and the number of species drops. And this is the biological model. It's basically being accepted. You know, Stephen Jay Gould, who coined the term um, uh, punctuated equilibrium uh, to describe this process. Well, I think the next uh, level of insight that needs to evolve and is evolving is recognizing that the the model of civilization is is basically mimics that of life as a whole. It's sawtooth rather than this smooth ascending curve. And that just as species have become extinct, civilizations have become extinct. And it, we really do need to understand that process if we're not going to fall victim to it ourselves. Well, the thing is that these, these, there are groups of people who have this information and they keep it to themselves. They let their kids learn it, but they're not going to let your kids learn it. You know what I mean? And I have three boys and they're going to public schools and this common core crap is unfavorable to me. Like you, they, they are trying to ruin math. Uh Like two plus two equals five. No, it does not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's almost, you never will. But see, just think about the term itself, common core, the idea Uh that you have to have one system imposed from the top down on everybody. And that's not what we need. We need true diversity. Um, you know, and, there, and this is why I've been a homeschooling activist for about 20 years. I, uh, I taught a lot of classes tutoring to kids that were being homeschooled. And it was really an eye-opening experience for me to see the difference between kids that were being indoctrinated in public schools and what that did to their, to their love of learning and then seeing kids that were being homeschooled that basically, look, you can learn whatever you want to learn. It's wide open. What do you love to do? That's what you're going to learn about. Hey, my and, kids are getting homeschooled. Will you give them some like online Skype courses? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, good for you, Darren. Good for you. Yeah, uh, that's that. That's nice, Darren. Could you imagine older, having gonna, Randall as a I'm gonna as call a teacher? You up, Randall, and get you to give him a couple of courses. Sure. Well, you know, to get the geometry course. You know, it's basically a drawing course, and most kids love it. And yeah. you know, when I, I taught yeah, geometry. For 15 years, and mostly what I would, I would start math courses by having the kids draw. And it was really, for the first few months, it was more like an art class. You know, and I would take them through the principles of, of geometric construction. Show them, you know, here's how you erect perpendicular lines. Here's parallel lines. Here's, you know, how you can create an equilateral triangle. Here's how you create a square. Here's a pentagon and other polygons. And here's the relationships in them. You know, now that you've drawn this right triangle, Let's study the three sides and their relationships. And it's not something that's totally abstract because they've just finished drawing these images. Um, And they would have like at the end of a course, you know, after, you know, nine months, they would have a whole drawing book filled with, with diagrams and patterns and stuff that they had drawn. And then from there, I would segue into the more abstract. Well, look, here's a right triangle and let's call it sides A, B, and C. And now when we say A squared plus B squared equals C squared, ah, it relates directly to this drawing that they had just done. And then basically I take them through that curriculum of geometric drawing and then use that to segue into the higher math. Because it all starts with geometry. You know, basically everything, no matter, you know, getting into the higher levels of, you know, differential calculus, 
or integral calculus, it all ultimately traces back to geometry and some fairly simple geometric principles. And the thing about math is, is math, if there's any subject that you need to go at, a, at an individual pace, it's math. And, and this is why, again, in the public school system, it completely fails because they basically get a room full of 25 or 30 kids and they have one pace. And out of that 25 or 30 kids, maybe there's three of them where that's the optimum pace. For some of them, it's too slow. They get bored and quit paying attention. For most of them, it's going to be too fast, and they move. you move on before they've grasped the basics, and that's where math gets so frustrating. If you take it one, uh, you know, one principle at a time, and it's, it's targeted to the individual's uh, optimum learning speed, you can get it. Anybody can get it. But, you know, I, I go, okay, so you've got kids coming out of high school now, that have spent 12 years in these in this government educational system. They can barely read. They can barely write. They don't know math. They don't know history. And so, I mean, that 12 years has been completely wasted. And in fact, really, all it's done is bring bring them into a place where they can, you know, get with their peers and 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 basically go for the lowest common denominator. Might as well, well that, so and, that and the government can raise them. Might right? as well have been like, shoes. Yeah. And if, and if you look at if you look at history, what you see is that throughout all of cultures in history, you see that, that once a kid reaches adolescence, it's time to start integrating them into the adult world and being treated like a like a young adult, not a perpetual kid. You know, but now what you have, I mean, when you look at these, you know, these these butterflies, these uh, snowflakes, you know, in college, it's like, you know, hey, wait a second, you guys aren't six years old. You know, you're supposed, by the time you get 20, 21 years old, you're supposed to be a, a, you know, an individual that can stand on your own two feet and can take it. You know, what the hell is this business about safe spaces? Because somebody's going to present an idea that traumatizes you. I mean, this is a byproduct of the government running the education in this country. You know, now I feel triggered. Yeah, I'm sorry if I triggered you, Cyrus. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go get my color crayons. I'll be right back. You know, what's happened is, is you know, colleges now aren't like places where you're really challenged. They've turned like into this glorified romper room. Well, I know this might not be a good uh, comparison, but like, uh, you know, Rogan's always talking about uh, domestic pigs and wild pigs, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're basically keeping the kids in a, like a a baby state. Right. We're not allowing them to grow. Right. We're not allowing them to become what they're like, what nature is intended for them. You know, kind of like when a feral, when a domestic pig gets feralized, it physically changes. It brain changes. It's, it's, it becomes what it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're holding our kids back by, by, Overprotecting them, uh, mom and dad, the family, you know, they're trying to kill the family dynamics by mom and dad both have to work while they, our kids go get raised by the liberal education system because you can't even be part of the education system unless you are a liberal and you're on, uh, not a liberal, but really, you know, farther left, the better. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you want to get into a PhD program, you might not, you're probably not going to get um, accepted if you're not having the same beliefs as the professors there. Right. So these are the people that are teaching your kids and 
I've heard I've heard politicians say that it's is the government's job to raise your kids. The parents serve a secondary sir, uh, purpose, and yeah, that's and that, not true. No, that's not true. And and people who buy into that really need to to, to take a time out and and do some serious thinking about this matter. Um, yeah, because and mean, when I was know, growing up in the '80s, they wanted me to tattle on my parents. Yeah, with the Dare I mean, program. Yeah. Exactly. You know, if you see something, say something. Yeah, exactly. When I was growing up, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1951, so I was a kid of the 50s and, a, you know, basically an adolescent and a teenager of the of the 60s. But I look back, you know, and I I realize, God, the things that we would do. You know, I mean, I'd be 13 years old. I'd hang go with my younger brothers or some of my buddies. And, you know, we lived in a rural environment in Minnesota, and I'd say, well, we're going camping for the night. And, you know, my dad would say, well, just be careful, and I'll see you tomorrow. And off we'd mm -hmm. go. You know, we'd pitch a tent. We'd build a fire. We'd cook food um, out there, in, you know, in the woods and camp out. Um, you, know, uh, you know, I started working on a farm when I was 13, hauling in hay bales. Um, Me too. Bending fences, shocking sugar cane, all of this stuff. Um, and the main reason I would do that is because I, it wasn't for the $2 a day. It was because at the end of the workday, we could saddle up the horses and go riding. Nice. But, um, you know, I mean, we lived on a lake. I had a canoe. You know, we had bicycles. I never wore a helmet. You know, I mean, I probably would now. Of course I would now. <laughs> but, you know, somehow we survived, you know. And I knew we had reached a nader here when about five or six years ago I was going to do a series of classes in a building that was um, – being used as a as a after school program in the on the main floor, and then there was a upstairs room that was kind of a classroom. So I was, and I did a series of classes in that upstairs room. Well, the 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 first time I go there, you know, the parking lot was in the back, and you went through a fence, and then there was the, um, you know, the play area for the for the uh, after school kids. And as I'm going in, I noticed something there. That there's some trees. Uh, in the back there, and they were wrapped in foam. And I had noticed that a couple of weeks on oh, no. end, and then finally I asked the lady, said, what, 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 why are those trees wrapped in foam? And she says, oh, that's a city requirement. We couldn't open until we wrapped the trees in foam to keep the kids from getting injured. Nerf the world. And I thought, yeah. I thought, what? What? At first, like, no, no, you're joking, right? No, 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 I'm dead serious. They they wouldn't let me open until I wrapped the trees in foam. We need to bring back lawn darts. <laughs> lawn darts, yeah. I, just, yeah, I remember uh, lawn I, darts. When I think of it now, it is pretty <laughs> fucked up, though. I bet you a lot of people went down with a lawn dart in the back or the shoulder <laughs> that I could just, oh. <laughs> but yeah, I went to high school in Troy, Montana. So... I grew, you know, I moved out there from Seattle and it's a whole nother life. I mean, yeah. I, I got to experience things out there that I'd never, I'd never got to experience here. I'm and sure. I mean, like what it does for your, uh, for your soul to be out there getting dirty, getting dirty, talking your friends into doing dumb stuff. Yep. You know, jumping off of cliffs. But but the other thing and is we we learned how to we learned how to uh to get along with different ages and different people and, and leaders yeah. would leaders would happen and we'd have to play with everybody. Like you know, Stefan Molyneux did a great podcast about the difference between growing up then and, and now. You know, we, we had so many challenges we had to sort out on our own. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you know, I but, when I was fifteen I worked, you know, as a uh 
pump jockey in a, in a gas station, right? So I was the guy when the cars pulled in, I would come out and, you know, pump the gas and, you know, check under the hood, check the oil, check the fluids and all of this. You know, when I was 15 and now, you know, at least here in Georgia, they don't even let 16 year olds pump gas even, you know, they'll have a sign right there on the, on the, 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 the gas pump, you know, 16 year olds and under can't pump gas. <laughs> and it's just every day I get reminded of this dumbing down that's going on. It's unbelievable. And, you know, yeah, it is. And, you know, we all survived. I mean, I came from a family with four and then later five brothers and we were roused about rough and tumble boys that played as hard as you could play and did stuff. We all survived, you know, somehow every once in a while, we got a few injuries here and there and, you know, and, 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 you know, I look back and yeah, I had, I knew some kids growing up that did some dumb, really, really dumb things and, you know, didn't survive. But it was interesting in that, you know, like when I was a little kid, there was a, there was a boy named Billy who lived nearby and his older brother was going, they were going to burn some trash and he threw, thought he was going to throw some, I don't remember exactly, but he threw some gas on the fire and it exploded and poor Billy, who was my age, um, got burned up and, and died a couple of weeks later. But for the rest of our lives, you know, it was almost like every kid I knew around that area had, had heard about what happened to Billy. And it was like, hey, you better not mess with that. You remember what happened to Billy? And it was almost like I look back and I kind of think, well, you know, that one kid having that thing happened taught all the rest of us. You know, that, and, and another example is that one time where I was with my dad and we were driving through the Ozarks and we came around the corner, I mean, seconds after this horrible multi-car crash had happened, my dad tried stopped to see if he could render some help. You know, I don't remember if he could do anything, but, but, you know, I remember getting out and looking at, you know, bodies laying on the pavement and I think I was about 12 or so at the time. And like, you know, somebody now would say, Oh, that's awful. You shouldn't let your kids see something like that. But you know what? It made such an impression on me that once I started driving, I had that image in my mind. And I thought, yeah, exactly. To myself, you know, what I'm if, not what if the parents like spent all their time hiding right. that from people? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, it, you're not going to, you're not doing kids any favor by oversheltering them. You know, and, and it's just too bad that we've gotten to the point now, like you said, where, you know, families are basically the, the family unit is being undermined by policy. And, you know, the government is taking a much more active role in, in raising these kids to just basically submit to authority. That's and that's what it's about. That's the whole purpose of modern education. It's about inculcating submission to authority and control. Yeah, and control. And when you see them coming in, you know. When I, when I was a kid, you know, like in sixth grade, I was a new kid in school and moved from Louisiana back to Minnesota over Christmas vacation, enrolled in a new school after Christmas vacation. And immediately I became the target of one of the supposed toughest kids in the school. He thought he would elevate his, his uh, status by beating up the new kid. A Louisiana so boy? Challenged me to a fight. And we met after school and had a fight. Of course, I whooped his ass. <laughs> but while I had him down, it was winter in Minnesota. And so I had him down on the ground and was making him eat snow. And the next thing you know, I'm being pulled off him by a cop that was driving by because there was like a hundred kids all around us in a big 
in a big crowd screaming their lungs off. Cop stops, pulls me off, makes us get up, and then he says, and then he makes us shake hands and go home. Now, if that happened, we'd both been handcuffed, <laughs> jail, and arrested. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so that's how you see that kid that got arrested. Thing has become You're fucking tased in the face. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's nuts. So, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on and on with stories like this. You know, this in in. That's why we need some serious changes in this society of ours. And you know, the the, the respect I've lost all respect for the left because. You know, when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and, you know, out there marching against the Vietnam War, I mean, I was out there with the progressive left. So we're basically ending the war, promoting free speech. And, you know, even though as I came to learn about their philosophy and their collective ideas of how the economy is supposed to work and stuff, I quickly rejected that. But nonetheless, they still had a, a measure of respect. And now I'm looking, where is the anti-war sentiment from? And where is the sentiment for, for free, unfettered speech coming from the so-called progressive left? It's, it's missing in action totally. And I'm hoping that there's somebody there who's, who's going, yeah, you know what? We're ramping up for World War III right now. That's what we're doing. I mean, all of these, these, these policies being put in place is 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 moving us towards World War Three, and by God, we better start doing something to to change the direction here. Yeah, because we managed to avoid nuclear catastrophe in the first Cold War. We might not be so lucky the second time around, especially when you have people up there who 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 think that a preemptive strike might be viable. Yeah, well, I suppose that's as good a spot as any to wrap it up. <laughs> Uh, we didn't even get to into the Holy Grail. No, didn't. Well, have to save a lot that there, for part but... six. <laughs> yeah, listeners, go read that article on Sacred Geometry International. It's one of the my favorite things I've ever read. And I'm going to go read the uh, here. I've already got it uh, copied onto my phone. Your uh, so it's a four part article about the beast. Yeah, I think Cameron broke it up into four parts. Uh, it's okay. also on uh, Geocosmic Rex as well. I think it's in PDF form on there. Yeah, go check out Geocosmic Rex. Go to the YouTube uh, channel, Geocosmic Rex. There is some awesome stuff. There's some little tasters in there. Yeah, the there's a bunch yeah. of cool stuff. Check out the, the – there's two YouTube clips of the drone footage we did last – our trip last fall. Yeah. It's just awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. You can and see fact, it. Earlier, I was talking about that big current ripple field, we mm -hmm. have drone footage of that, and people can look at that online and, and see for themselves the scale of the phenomena we're talking about here. Yeah, it right. looks like uh, it's, it's, it looks like the riverbanks after a, f a real hard rain or a flood, yep. and you got the ripples on the side, yep. and take that and exponentially just grow it up to just hills and hills and just spreading out all through the the countryside. It's insane. Yeah, it is. So you guys also and take. I haven't a, heard the last four episodes of Throttle. Make sure you check them out. I know it was yeah, 129, 129, and one hundred and thirty-one, and the other two were before we started yeah, numbering. The, them. They'll all be in the show notes. Yeah, 
And then, so Randall, yeah. you guys also accept donations too, right? So people can go to your site, buy your oh, DVDs. Yeah. Uh, they get 33% off with Cry America. They can check out uh, classes there as well, and uh, and they can just donate to help you guys out as well. We expect at least 50 of you fuckers to buy the DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, I, we try to do, you know, once I was doing two and three research trips every year, and then that slowed down when the recession, but I'm picking up the pace again. And so... I'm always looking for uh, team members who want to participate in the in the field studies and the research and exploring these amazing landscapes. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, I'm in. Who said that? Cyrus. Cyrus. All right. Man. I got a truck. It'll be a Sherpa. You guys. <laughs> I can haul everything you need. Okay. Well, you're 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 in Seattle now, right? Yeah, I'm I'm right off of I-90. Okay. Well, yeah, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump over the mountains, and then you're basically into the scab lands. Yes, sir. We go dirt bike riding in Moses Lake all the time. Oh, do you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just I grew stayed, up in the pot we stayed in Cheney, right? We stayed in Cheney in October. Yeah, we stayed oh, no, in Cheney. That's that where the in captain March. was. Yeah. So yeah. I drove one of the listeners. He's a, he's a fan of yours, too. Uh, Adam Loyal from the Friends of the Know podcast. I picked him up in SeaTac, uh-huh. and we drove all the way out to Cheney. I'm like, dude, check this out. And I started pointing it out, and he's like, whoa. I'm like, yeah, this is the stuff Randall's always talking about, dude. <laughs> I wish we would have had time to go up to Cooley. Yeah. yeah, we went to Cooley with Brad. That's where I lost my hat. Yeah. You mean Coo- Grand Cooley? Grand Cooley, yeah. We went yeah, right that's... up to the Dry Falls. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, in I fact, think we only we missed you by Falls, like eight hours or something like that. What's that? I think we only missed you by like eight hours. Yeah, I think so. And I for, couldn't for, get off work. Well, yeah. So I'm planning a trip actually in about a month to the southwest, um, and I think we got room for one or two, um, basically because one guy had to cancel because of his schedule change at work. And then later in the summer, hope to be up there near you guys. If you look at the, I'm going to put one more uh, image up on the screen for, for people is. to look at. Uh, Dry Falls Cataract from the air. Okay. And you'll see one alcove. And then I've got um, uh, Horseshoe Falls of Niagara up in the corner at the same scale. So, and basically we're only looking at, at one alcove and this, this feature we're looking at here is over five miles wide, 400 feet high. Um, the volume of water pouring over this was about 400 feet deep, moving at 60 miles an hour and just ripping the shit yeah. out of this landscape. And that's and, uh, to scale. Look how much bigger. Yeah. That would have oh, been it's huge. You wouldn't even see the little boats that would be down there fishing. That's that ridiculous. Lake. No, yeah, right. You wouldn't even see the boats. That little so, Randall, do you have that the picture? The left is the one that I was climbing over when I lost Look, my hat. There's Dan's hat down there. There it is. <laughs> Make America oh, yeah, great there. again. I see, I see it. Yeah. The ironic thing is I probably just lost that hat like two days after that footage. Yeah. Actually, this footage was, uh, well, let's see. I took this photograph in, 19, actually, 1998. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was just, oh, that's uh, not the drone. I, I think you, you were still punk. in diapers then, right? Yeah, that's right. Randall, do you have that picture to show the the people who are able to watch this on YouTube? The one, the the uh, the potholes one, the Moses Lake. Um, uh, you mean the, the mudslide? The, the one mud that freaked Rogan out. 
Um, is that I don't know if you have that on there. Did Brad ever post a video? I have it on my phone. That fucking (laughs) army plane ducking down into the coolie any place? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's up actually. That that clip is up on the geocosmic site. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah, you're talking about potholes cataract. Yes. Uh, yeah, I probably have it right here. Let's see. Right. Uh, No, no, that's not it. Dry Falls. It's it's one of the big cataract complexes out there, and uh, yeah, this was the first actually the first drone footage that Brad did. Uh, see if I can find it here. Um, it's coming up. Um, yeah, that's. Wasn't there a Google Earth picture, a satellite yes. picture of that slide? Yes. There. Yeah, we had a Google Earth. Okay, if we look at this image right here. Uh, this is called Quincy Basin, and this entire area was a temporary holding pond for the floodwaters that came out of Grand Coulee up here. Mm-hmm. This is Moses Lake, which was a which was a meander of the very final draining of the great floods. But over here on the western rim, you see there are two spillover channels. Uh, this is the one you're talking about, potholes, cataract, and this is Frenchman Springs. And... So basically, there was so much water that came down here, even though it gushed over this region down on the lower right, which is 10 miles wide. The water flowing through here was 10 miles wide and 400 feet deep. And then over here, it had to raise 400 feet minimum in order to spill over this ridge. Um, But this potholes cataract is where we've got the drone footage uh, up on on the uh, the, uh, geocosmic website and i think i've got the uh should have it right here here we go here's so here is the google earth image of the cataract and you can see here you've got alcoves extinct alcoves there's two great alcoves here that are these horseshoe shaped features mm-hmm. and then you've got what's called a rock blade this the central rock thing that separates the two alcoves and um, had the flood continued to spill over for, you know, a matter of a few more days or another week or two, that rock blade would have been gone. Um, and see here, here's, here's a, a geological, U.S. Geological Survey map of the feature. If you look at these round lakes, those are the potholes. And basically what you're looking at here is water that was perhaps 600 feet deep and uh, enormous, extreme turbulence in that water Literally, like a tornado of just like, water yes. and rocks and boulders like underwater tornado that just sweeps up rocks and debris and then acts like a giant circular drill that just yeah just bores its way into the into the uh into the bedrock so here you can see the water came from the right uh spilling over the rim uh, in the left down into the columbia basin Here's an aerial photograph I took of the feature back in 98. Just um, ground away. It's what? Just ground, just ground up by boulders the size yeah. of school buses. and Yeah, the size of school buses and even bigger. The, the drone calves. footage you took. Graham's calves. Uh, That's an inside joke. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's see if I've got the... Uh, well, I didn't have the drone picture in this particular slide. But look but at just that. below it, here's here you see what's called West Bar, which is another gigantic boulder bar. It's three miles long, two to three hundred feet thick. 
and it's gigantic ripples. And and if you look very close, you'll see right there where my mouse cursor is, there's a three-story building next to the landing strip that's on this thing scale. And this is similar to the same scale as the feature Camas Prairie that I showed you earlier that's in Montana. This particular feature is in Washington. But basically what it does is it shows you the vast extent of this mega flooding that terminated the end of the last ice age. So okay. these are these are these giant current ripple fields. Here, the cross section where you can see there's a little human figure standing down here and you can see the, you know, hmm. you can see the ripples here. And then essentially you see that cliff that was sheared off by the massive 800 feet deep water that flowed through at its peak. Like the Sphinx, that's not wind, people. Right. No, it's not wind. But yeah, I mean, we could go on and on. We could spend the whole, uh, the whole discussion just talking about these amazing floods that terminated the last ice age. But I guess we do need to wrap it up here, don't we? Right on. Well, thanks, Randall. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, you'll get into all that in your podcast, I'm sure, too. It's going to be so nice to see you having your own media platform to, to start uh, getting to people directly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people need to know about this. Yeah. You know, this is part of the history, and it, this isn't something that we're looking at that happened millions of years ago. It yeah. happened thousands of years ago during the time that there were human beings here. And, you know, we didn't talk about this at all, but... Um, Native Americans have a lot of stories and legends about gigantic floods that happened. And we can actually learn a lot from these indigenous traditions and from the mythic traditions and so forth. Um, oh, there's so much stuff for, that they know that we kept for. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's the, the, the subject of geomythology, which again, that's, I've seen, you know, comments, you know, dismissing oh, what's geomythology, you know, more woo woo, you know, but really what it is, it's the recognition that a lot of these myths and legends and things that have come down to us actually have uh, plausible scientific information embedded in them. If you know how to kind of pry them apart and, um, and look into the essence of, of, of what initially uh, stimulated these, the, the recurrence of these myths and their perpetuation they're loaded with information, legitimate information. So that's and these you know, so-called kind of, experts. How can they call themselves experts if they haven't looked at everything? Right, and and I get that all the time. You know, like, oh, what does Randall? What do the experts say? And I go, you're talking to one. <laughs> okay, who might these experts be? Now I've got every in my archives. I've got every article that's ever been written on impacts on mega floods on mass extinctions. I can name off a hundred of the experts that have worked on this pros, cons, all the different points of view. So who are these experts? Please give me some names. If there's some that I haven't heard of, I'd like to go access their, their information. But you know, people seem to think, again, it's this authoritarian mindset. They don't realize that science is really, it's a, it's a state of mind. It's an approach to learning. It's not, it's only secondarily a profession. And science, modern science, was not started by, quote-unquote, professional scientists. It was started by people who were using the scientific method, but who themselves were, nobody was paying them to do science like exactly. now. And see, there's the problem, you know, and, and it seems, well, sure, you can have corrupt science if, if big corporations are paying you, but you can also and, and do have corrupt science when the funding is coming from governments, you know. So you have to look through that. And, and you know, it's like this authoritarian mindset 
I get see all the time people going, well, what do the real scientists think? Well, who are these real scientists that you're talking about? You can't even name one. You know, you just, in your imagination, you think that there's some omniscient authoritarian body that's got all the answers figured out. <laughs> and, you know, if they're not this official group, then, you know, you don't even have to pay any attention to it. Never mind if you've studied this stuff for 40 years and have, have you know, you know, interacted and, and, and learned from dozens of hardcore scientists that are work, you know, astronomers and geologists and paleontologists and archaeologists, people that I've met and interviewed and, and gone out in the field with, you know. Um, so, you know, but it's, again, it, it's an evasive maneuver so that people can, you know, not rise to the responsibility of looking at the critical information. You know, they can basically go about their lives with their heads stuck up their asses and, and not pay attention. And they just get away with going 97%. Yeah. yeah. And, and I say, okay, who? who name, 98%. Name, name three of these people that are in total agreement. And 99%. So far, now. Not once has anybody been able to actually do that. Yeah. So Never. all of these people out there that are listening, you know, don't, don't fall for the scams and the hypes. Think on your own, learn critical thinking skills, invest the time, do the homework yourself. And um, yeah. Just- oh, Randall, do you know, do you know the name uh, uh, Scott Adams? Scott Adams. I'm sure sound- you're familiar with his work. He created that comic strip Dilbert. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's where I've seen. Have it. you heard him talk about the climate change? No, I haven't. Uh, guys, I wonder if we should get them in contact. Because I can't he's even he, fucking getting contact. <laughs> How are we gonna do that, <laughs> dude? He's yeah. He's uh, he goes up against the uh, the the models, the <laughs> global climate models, and he's battling it. And he talks about how you know the way they set it up is to to get a determined outcome. Yes, you know, oh, yeah. and. I think if he had access to like your your kind of research, I think that would be a big help for him on his side. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I but he's got a that. huge audience. So they, uh-huh. Yeah, I've been trying to get him to get in contact with Gramerica too. But yeah, he's got a pretty big following. But he's got a really nice uh, blog that he does that uh, we follow. It's it, if you if you feel like it, go check it out. Sure, All All right. I will do that. Thanks, Cyrus. Yeah, and thanks, Thank Randall. You thanks for this coming is on. Awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was thanks fun. to both of you. We'll do this again in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll be crossing paths with you guys. We can hang out in the mountains again. Yeah, God, right on. Was... So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What happens in the mountains stays in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Okay. To see you guys. Okay. Okay. So guys. long, gentlemen. Bye. Thank you, Randall. And that was our chat with Randall Carlson. Big thanks to Randall and Cyrus for coming on the show. Of course, guys, check out uh, grammarica.ca slash support so you can see how we can keep having these long ass uninterrupted chats talking about stuff that's important and you're not going to hear anyplace else. And the only way we can, only reason we can have these chats is because, uh, we're not beholden to anybody but you. Yep. No time frames, no advertising. Yep. And you can we can now we're putting video up there for the only way they can come after us is to kill us. Yeah.
All right, guys, check out grammarica.ca slash support and support the show if you can. I think we'll keep it at that since this show has probably gone nearly four hours already. Yeah. Okay, guys, see you next week. Bye.